Hey everybody, I'm Nerdslayer. Welcome to Six Pixels Under podcast. This is episode 13. I actually left my title on here, so let me move this out of the way. Sorry about that. Um, hey everybody, uh, thanks for the donation, uh, bit donation, Cups and Lantern and uh, Goosey B. You guys love doing the awkward donation timings. <laughs> okay, so now I know that you guys do that on purpose. But anyway, welcome to the podcast, everybody. I'm Nerdslayer, your ho your host. And uh, on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about a couple of things. First, we'll start with um, Rockstar and their recent, uh, I guess, drama over their microtransactions. We'll talk about Fallout 76 again. We'll talk about The Outer Worlds, the new game uh, put forth by the uh, Tim Kaine and uh, Leonard Buarski uh, crew. I think, actually, there might be one other guy involved in that, too, who was from the original crew. I can't remember. We'll talk more about Fallout 76. We'll talk more about the Epic Store, which just recently was launched, which is supposed to try and uh, compete with Steam and is going to offer some, like, 88% revenue share or whatever going to the developers. Uh, we'll talk about Smash Ultimate a little bit, and then of course we'll get to the uh, MMOs on the Go segment today, which we'll be talk about um, Atlas, that wild card just announced, Legends of Arius stuff, um, some Daybreak rumors slash uh, uh, recent news. Then during the Soapbox Time segment, we will talk about... Um, so there's one thread in particular from Reddit that I wanted to talk about, and then there was also some random article I saw on VentureBeat.com. And whenever I see a uh, general journalism type of website reporting on gaming and specifically reporting on MMOs, something that I particularly uh, spend a lot of time and interest in, it's always good. So I want to react to that to see, <laughs> to see what the heck these guys are talking about. So that'll be fun. And then during the uh, call-in segment, of course, that's the end of the segment, you can join the Discord or you can at uh, me on... Uh, Twitch, and you can ask any questions. It's like an AMA format. You can respond to anything that I say during the podcast. And the cool thing is, is you can respond to it immediately. You don't have to just uh, wait for me, I guess, to uh, to do the call-in segment. The call-out segment is just for, I guess, everybody who maybe missed it or just wants to ask questions or maybe has some specific point that they want to bring up. Whereas you can react immediately. Uh, right now in Discord, we have a card. He's sitting in the podcast lobby. So if you have any questions um, for him during, you know, at any point of the uh, podcast uh, or questions that you want to get to me, rather, um, you can talk to him and then he'll set you up and drag you in. So let's go ahead and get started on the first thing that I wanted to talk about, actually, as the title says, is uh, I just recently came back from PAX Unplugged. And oh, thanks for subbing, by the way, Card. I appreciate that. We're back to 29 subs. If you guys saw that we dropped a little bit, uh, it's true, unfortunately. This happens whenever new months start. You lose like a lot of your free subscriptions that you you know they use their Twitch Primes or whatever else. Um, so we're back at 29. Dang it, we were so close. We were like 12 away at one point. Anyway, um, so I wanted to talk about my uh, experience at PAX Unplugged. First, let me say I didn't have. A whole lot of expectations going in. I've been out of the uh, tabletop, I guess, crowd for quite a while now. And I used to play Neverwinter Nights 2 heavily on modded servers. So I was very much into like D&D 3.5 and, and even uh, 3.0 in some cases. And then, of course, I've had experience with Pathfinder games as well. Um, but I was never like a big pen and paper RPer. I mostly RPed in uh, MMORPGs and that sort of stuff. 
But um, tabletop games I was always interested in, and I was especially interested in, you know, of course, like Magic and um, other more proven commodities like that, like Mafia, of course, my favorite game. Um, they had a couple other games that I didn't get to try, unfortunately, but there's a couple other deduction games there. But anyway, I didn't have much expectation other than I just heard people talk about it. It was a great tabletop event, and it was very kind of low-key and personal. And that's kind of what I, kind of what I wanted, because I wanted to film our upcoming uh, a channel announcement slash Patreon video. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and so I needed to film that somewhere. And my friend, who happens to live in Philly, it was like a kind of perfect storm of things. So... He helped me shoot. Uh, he brought one of his friends. We got a sound guy. We interviewed people. Uh, we, we talked to developers. We played a couple of games. Uh, we shot a bunch of footage. We shot footage of um, a couple skits that we have planned and a bunch of stuff that we have planned anyway for the uh, channel that's like big. But uh, back to PAX Unplugged. So we get to PAX Unplugged and it's just, you know, it's like most like convention centers. It's a big wide open space. But immediately you can kind of tell that things are different. And what I mean by that is that you can tell that the crowd there is a different kind of crowd. Uh, usually you'll have, I don't know, you go to a big convention like E3 or, or PAX uh, Prime or whatever else. And people are kind of all waiting in line like zombies, ready to play the next, you know, best experience or whatever. Um, to play the games that are on the floor. Whereas whenever I was at uh, PAX Unplugged, to me it was so crazy how all of these players, even though the, many of them don't really know each other... They're all talking. They're having a good time. They're sitting around tables. They're playing card games. They're playing, you know, uh, Settlers of Catan. They're playing uh, D&D. They're playing whatever you could possibly think of, you know, completely different random games that I've never even heard of that I uh, got to play and also check out. And, uh, and they're all socializing. And it, and it got me thinking. I was like, hmm. So I started asking people in the, in the audience questions. I asked them questions like, um, are you a fan of MMOs? And one thing that you'll find uh, quite interesting if you haven't made the connection already is that many, many, many of these people, they were fans of MMOs and they had played MMOs. Either they played WoW, either they played D&D Online, either they played uh, Star Wars uh, Public. They played a bunch of different games and they were listing all of these games to me. Some even played Galaxies and even more classic games like EverQuest. <clears throat> They were all telling me they loved MMOs, but the things that they didn't like about MMOs was because, like, with tabletop, your limits is essentially your imagination. So it's, like, never-ending. You could possibly think of, like, these crazy great scenarios, and it's hard for, like, a game, especially back then in practice, to really deliver on any of that. So for a lot of people, they still like the imagination aspect, the social aspect, because whenever you play a tabletop RPG you're in an adventure party, right? You're in a group together and you're all kind of working together. Now, sometimes you can kind of like backstab each other and like be dicks, but generally speaking, you're trying to like, you know, come together and, and work uh, in this adventure party. Whereas like in online games, especially MMOs sometimes, it's not as like incentivized, especially in current day to group up. And that was like a key thing of tabletop. And if you're wondering why tabletop is, relevant well i mean all rpgs come from pen and paper that's where it starts right it starts on pen and paper then it gets to you know multi-user dimension like text-based games that uh, then it gets to muds then it gets to 3d graphical uh games and or even just 2d isometric into 3d graphical games etc etc and now we're here where we are so when, when you think about how MMOs can get better, in many ways, it's about going back to what they already were kind of built on. 
So where you have like in D&D's case, it really got these ideas of alignment good, which which alignment is useful in a game because it helps police players, but it also helps like classify players in different and unique ways. Uh, a, uh, a lot of these people, when I interviewed them, one thing that they nearly always uh, said was that in MMOs, there was next to no character like customization and character backstory compared to like an actual character. They were like, oh, you know, it could take you like 10 to 20 minutes to make a character in an MMO. You pick your um, skin color, your race, uh, you maybe you're an orc or whatever else. Uh, you, maybe you're a dark green orc. And you can kind of, you know, customize little aspects of you. Maybe your class, right? That's nothing compared to D&D, right? In D&D, you have to think about the motive of your character. Why does my character even do these things, right? That's way more integral of a kind of thought process than just being like, oh, it just does this. You're thinking about like the motive for your character, like what makes your character tick, like your alignment, your your backstory, your upbringing, your particular like um, sign, right? Uh, what God you pray to. There's so many different things that you have to like do with D&D and, and when you make characters and, and pen and paper RPGs you can't really do in mmos and so you think about it and another thing that tabletop rpgs have always had is variety um, when you think about dnd dnd has so many different types of builds that you could possibly play that's what i've always loved about mmos is i love the mmos where you have so many different types of options i grew up playing guild wars one for example um star wars galaxies right these games have a lot of uh variety in the way that you could play the game and what I noticed over the years, you know, playing from young 2001 all the way to now, pretty much, uh, I've seen how MMOs have kind of lost a lot of that variety in play, but also ability to kind of like out-knowledge people. And what I mean by out-knowledge is some games do have mechanical abilities, which I do respect. I like mechanical ability. I like mechanical ability in MMOs. I don't think it should all be stationary, boring kind of gameplay. There should be physics-based games. You should have to melee somebody and hit them. Like, I like that kind of concept. But at the same time, there's something to say about the concept where it's a lot more kind of contained. Maybe it even has a holy trinity. But it's more so based on your ability to use your abilities and your knowledge of the matchups that you're playing against. That's what the majority of MMOs are, right? Like, if someone might ask, like, how can you get good at MMOs? Well, you need to get good at knowing what your class is supposed to do knowing what other classes do, knowing what your class does against other classes and those classes do against you, and essentially you're going to be good in the MMO, at least PvP-wise, right? With Raid, you have to study a lot more, you have to practice, you have to min-max, you have to find out what's the best like composition of whatever gear that you need to have so you can maximize your amount of DPS. Um, but D&D just has way more layers to that. Because in D&D, again, you can also have a dm who allows for pvp you can have pvp and i mean many many people have killed each other in dnd but uh it's typically not supposed to be that way i just realized my chair just shrunk, shrunk down it made me look even shorter it's kind of funny there it goes <laughs> there you go i for some reason i always look so small in this shot i guess the the way that it's uh framed but um i'm ranting but just talking to these tabletop fans, it was just awesome. And even developers, because you could just tell, like, 
they wanted MMORPGs to be like that good. And but all we're talking about how tabletop started making this big comeback. And it, and it's it doesn't take like a genius to see like the correlation here, right? MMO market kind of dies down and all of a sudden tabletop market jumps back up. It's like the RPG fans probably left the industry. Like we we haven't somebody made a particular good point and I'll I'll put it in the video that I make. He made a point that when you when you look at like the role player uh, community, they're far more dedicated than any other community, and I totally agree with him. I'm I think he's absolutely right about that. And yet they haven't really been fully monetized yet. And what I mean by monetized, that sounds like horrible, but I just mean like people haven't really targeted that market, and it's strange because yeah, you see certain games like Forts Dungeons and Dragons Online, uh, Neverwinter Online, these different games they try and do it, but they don't do it in the same way that you can, you know, do it in Neverwinter Nights 2, for example, right? Where you can really customize exactly how you want your character to be, and then you can actually play it in real-time combat so you don't have to roll, right? Like, you don't have to roll. The game rolls for you, essentially. Uh, but, yeah, he, he, made the, he made that point. I thought it was really smart. We, we need to do... Like, yeah, sure, cosmetics card. That's a good point. Cosmetics have always targeted the role players. But it's just kind of like... Yeah, uh, that's a really good example. Cups and Lantern says, uh, <clears throat> losing my voice already, Second Life. Second Life is a great example of that. It really allows people to roleplay furries and all this crazy, you know, cool stuff or whatever else. <clears throat> I have to be, um, not to be too quick to <laughs> uh, joke about things I don't really understand. <laughs> I think we should go ahead and get started on our new segment. Uh, what else did I have? Or actually, no, what else did I have to say about PAX Unplugged? I think that was pretty of my... Yeah. Let me change this image in real time. We're live, as, as chat likes to spam. All right, so for the current gaming news section, the first thing that I wanted to talk about was the recent drama surrounding Rockstar Games. So, for people who aren't um, completely aware, there were some questionable monetization uh, practices in RDR2, or, you know, as it's dubbed, Red Dead Online. The particular example people would use is that beans cost more money than diamonds did, and beans were something that you had to purchase, uh, or were a purchasable item because you needed to, like, eat or whatever else. So that was like people's idea of like showcasing how a diamond should never be worth worth less than beans, but if it's worth less or worth less, it's probably for economic reasons. And then of course people started to realize that of course, you know, there's a lot of grind, there's a lot of microtransactions. <sighs> Point being, I'm not really sure why people are totally surprised here, but I'll just entertain it anyway and and read the tweet. So after all of this drama, Rockstar Games responds with, Thanks to everyone who has participated in beta so far. We appreciate your help in testing the game. Your feedback from these early days <laughs> will be instrumental in helping formulate updates uh, to every aspect of the experience. Our current areas of focus include in-game economy, which will require some additional balancing in order to ensure all activities appropriately rewarding and fun, as well as some persistent bugs and blah, 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 blah. Let me read that part again. Our current areas of focus, focus include the in-game economy, which will require some additional balancing in order to ensure all activities are appropriately rewarding and fun, 
that crap like there. Okay, so that particular part really annoys me. <clears throat> this isn't an apology. This is a I got caught. So let me go ahead and make a public, you know, statement regarding this. But I hate this because first off, we already expected this from Rockstar. They had some pretty insane microtransactions in GTA Online and Red Dead Online. There was really no reason to think that they would do it differently if it was already proving to be massively successful for the company. Not to mention, I don't know what their investor board uh, consists of. I don't know how much they actually own the company, if it's a corporation at this point. I don't know that much information about Rockstar in regards to their, I guess, uh, business aspects. But in this particular regard, we already had these suspicions going in, and so people already found these these uh, economic imbalances like very quickly. Cause some people did have it in their mind. Eh, this is going to be unfair, so they kind of wanted to make a stink about it, which is totally fine. You should do that when things are um, uh, certainly not just. But in this particular case, you think about it, Rockstar knew exactly what they were doing whenever they designed the system. You have to. In order to do a, you know effective in-game microtransaction economy, you have to make it a part of the actual economy, right? That way you can actually create a, a need for things. So whenever people want, I don't know, say, for example, that travel pack in Ion that you need in order to, to chat, to trade, sorry, to trade, to use a mount or something like that, if I remember correctly, it's like a 30-day pack. Um, that particular thing is always going to be, you know, bought in the economy because now it's a thing that you can buy, but it's also a thing that you can sell in the actual game. So companies have always liked to do that kind of stuff because they like to tie in the actual like stores with the actual in-game economies. And I know that's it. That starts to get into pay to win territory. People, again, they like that because it's so easy to monetize that. Uh, for example, Ion in Korea for the longest time, as I mentioned in my video, had a had a weapon pack that had one of the best weapons in the game. So you think about it, and sure, the Korean market, as I hope to tell you guys someday in a video format, is certainly different than the American or the Western uh, market in general, uh, the European market as well. It's certainly, you can see kind of like, what, what it comes down to with microtransactions, a lot of the time, it's about getting your hand caught in the cookie jar. In this case, uh, Rockstar is the one putting their hand into the cookie jar, and the cookie jar is actually your wallet. <clears throat> And until you actually notice this, that these are unfair business practices and start to kind of back uh, them away, they'll keep doing these kinds of practices. But the more sinister thing, in my opinion, is that they do them knowing that they very well likely could be controversial, but they're essentially gambling with, eh, this shouldn't be that controversial, or maybe people won't notice. And one thing I'm noticing, especially recently, is gamers are starting to notice, and I respect that about everybody. And I know we hate referring to ourselves as gamers because it just sounds so, you know, I don't know, it just sounds like tool, <laughs> like a tool rather, and not the band. It, we are in this kind of together, right? We're all playing games together, and we're all trying to exist in this online space of gaming. And uh, it's it's good to see that people are being a little bit more aware of it, but. I'm even going a step further in saying that we should already expect this kind of stuff from these companies. And, and kudos to the people who figured this stuff out as fast as they did, because it had to have been days, if I remember correctly, uh, correctly rather, uh, after the game had launched. Sorry, the online portion had launched. Take-Two is their publisher? Yeah. <laughs> Take-Two is their publisher. Okay, oh, there's the money. You found the money card, as we always say, right? 
There's a famous saying, and I can't remember it right now, but it's uh, if you can follow the money, you can you can explain exactly uh, why things are happening, right? And when you start to see people do these kind of, hmm, I hope people don't get angry about our microtransactions kind of things, it's usually because they got somebody behind them telling them, you're going to do this. Because that other company, the publisher, whoever else, they don't give a shit, right? They don't care. If your reputation gets hurt a little bit, as long as their profit is good, right? Like they can, there's a buffer there. Your reputation can afford to take certain amount of hit. Companies do it all the time. They calculate risks like, right, uh, how bad will this be in, in public? Uh, how bad will this seem to other companies or to potential consumers, right? They have to weigh all of these kinds of risks. People are waking up. It's a shame to take, it took a year of controversies to finally get them there, but I'll take it. Yeah, and that's that's the unfortunate thing. It's like, you can't get mad when fire comes, but you do kind of wish that people would have, you know, kind of gotten the fire going a little bit sooner. That's for sure. Okay. The next segment that I wanted to talk about was some hilariously, like, but also crazy uh, bit of information that somebody gave me uh, earlier in the week. And that uh, was concerning an article published in Sweden, apparently. Let's see if I can translate this. Okay, so the... So somebody, I'll just have to read the translation. But essentially what this guy says is it seems like people have accused uh, Starbreeze, sorry, let me set the stage. Starbreeze Studios is the company that publishes and I think now owns Payday in the Payday series. Um, They're a Swedish company. And apparently recently they were raided because of uh, suspicions of insider trading and apparently property was seized, which is what they do whenever this happens, right? They steal your, your PCs and they start to comb through them, see if they can find any, like, incriminating data. And apparently one person was arrested. <laughs> and the people that were accused of insider trading, as this guy says, was the CEO, previous CEO, and the previous uh, CFO. And they sold their shares for a fuck ton of money. Essentially what this means is that a lot of the time... I don't want to say a lot of the time, but often what happens in this kind of story, and it's a real thing, this does happen in real life, but it's often portrayed in, you know, different types of media and whatever else. But what happens is um, you you have a, uh, a CEO or whoever else, somebody on the board gets a notice that the company is not doing well and is going to maybe have a big downturn. And what they try and do is immediately sell their stock and try and do it in a not so suspicious way. Uh, sorry, somebody else pointed out something really smart um, that Dumbo here forgot about. The Walking Dead game also is Starbreeze Studios, for those who aren't aware. Um, it's published by them. So point being, they haven't uh, had the best year <laughs> and certainly haven't had the best past couple of months. So this is a perfect time for a theoretical criminal, because it is a criminal act of insider trading, to say, you know what? The company's obviously on a downturn. Let's just cash out right now while our shares are high. And then that way, whenever the company does go back low, we won't lose out on that money. It's illegal. And now I'm not going, I'm not a lawyer. I don't want to get into the exact reasons as to why it's illegal. I'll just say my um, five second uh, passerby opinion of it. Insider trading is essentially where somebody, as I said, has knowledge that they shouldn't theoretically have otherwise. 
Um, and this, you know, means the inner workings of a corporation, right? Once once a company uh, is publicly uh, is publicly sold, right? There's stock in it. it it's it's fraud essentially, right? because you're you're profiting off of information that you shouldn't theoretically uh, have in the first place because you know the inner workings of the company, which means you can manipulate the market, right? Otherwise, everybody would just do that. They could just tank their companies and try and make fuck tons of money. <laughs> to put it simply. But um, obviously, there's a lot more complicated of an explanation. Isn't this crazy, though, that the, the company behind Payday, the publisher behind Payday, is involved in some, like, heist-like scenario where they were, like, raided <laughs> in their property seized? Like, I wonder, I wonder if, that, if that heist was done in-game, how much money they would have made off of that and how many guards they would have had to shoot <laughs> in that game. All right, let's um, let's go to some cool bit of news. Very, very, very exciting bit of news. Check it out. Obsidian's The Outer Worlds blends Firefly and Fallout into a bold and open-ended sci-fi RPG, says uh, PC Gamer. Nice. Anyway, let's watch some of the gameplay. So, uh, for people who aren't aware about uh, Obsidian's new RPG, The Outer Worlds, <clears throat> I, for some reason, neglected to put in the title. Let me do that now. There we go. Cool. Anyway, so for those who don't know about it, um, there's been a particular powerful duo in Tim Kaine and Leonard Bjarsky, as the article mentions. I talked about them in my, uh, in my, I'm so terrible with names. It's uh, Troika. Sorry, Troika. Uh, I talked about them. They were the ones that did uh, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. They also did Fallout 1 and Fallout 2. And unfortunately, didn't get to do Fallout 3. And then they, unfortunately, they weren't so good at business. <laughs> Their company kind of failed, and I detailed that. And I'll probably redo that video because I really like that company and, and really love those particular games. But uh, Obsidian kind of quietly scooped them up a couple years back. And I even remarked about this in my video, in my Troika video. And you, you, it was kind of like a stealth move, but Obsidian was essentially trying to play a long game, which they don't normally do. Obsidian has always been a company that has kind of lived like week to week, right? They, li they live based on how their games do. And that's why they've been in such financial trouble time and time again, because when their next game doesn't do well, they don't have anything in their reserve. So they, they always find themselves in, you know, a lot of problematic situations, right? And, and so that, that was happening ad nauseum. And it seemed like Obsidian had finally reached a point where they could no longer continue. And that was because uh, PoE 2, or Pillars of Eternity 2, uh, unfortunately was a commercial failure. Uh, it was a decent game. I, I even liked the game to some extent, but it was a commercial failure. I think it only they said it only sold a couple hundred thousand copies, which was far, far, far less than PO, uh, PoE 1 sold. So it looks like they were kind of like not doing so well in that regard. And so it's not surprised that Obsidian kind of got acquired or or got, you know, now has a publisher in Microsoft, which it never has had a sole publisher before. It was an independent company. Um, I think this is why, right? The Outer Worlds, it seems like a pretty ambitious project. 
and it's maybe one that they no longer could afford to bankroll so they kind of needed to get involved with microsoft or maybe they just thought that they could have a better platform for it the whole pc xbox blend that microsoft's been trying to do with their whole uh windows whatever the heck they call it what's that thing called xbox is it the x windows um i can't remember what they call it but uh anyway let's let's watch a little bit of gameplay i was surprised they showcased gameplay i'll be honest um i expected them to get up there and just talk to us but no they showed us some gameplay and it looks like a mixture of like borderlands with like fallout it obviously has very similar aspects to fallout coming from creators of fallout you would probably expect that right and he, there's a lot of big kind of armor i, I think brotherhood obviously i'm gonna skip ahead here um faces even look similar to kind of fallout style now mind you just so you guys know the guy, these are the guys behind the first two fallouts uh as well as um they <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> Sorry, it made me laugh because I remembered that um, uh, somebody posted a meme where it was like, uh, just so you guys know, Obsidian w was some of the guys behind the first two Fallouts and Fallout New Vegas. It was kind of like throwing shade at um, Bethesda. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. Did I not put it on screen? There you go. Uh, there's there's not a whole lot of gameplay in this in this video, unfortunately. But uh, anyway, you guys got my point. It looks very like Borderlands mixed with Fallout, and um, yeah, AKA all the good ones. That's kind of what the joke uh, was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, Vampire: The Masquerade Bloodlines is a very unfortunate tale, one that I told in that in that video is old and and outdated and ancient as my. My quality probably sounds now, but it was one of those games that essentially went head to head with, you know, the consensus best game of like a decade, a Half-Life 2. It launched the same day and it also had next to none of the same support. So it was kind of like they were lucky in that they got to use the Valve engine because it really set their game apart. Even now, if you go back and play Half-Life 2 or even go play um, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines with like the patches... They still look, they're pretty good looking games, like, con, you know, considering. But the problem was, is that Troika went with it in the very last second. So they essentially had little to no time to kind of optimize the engine. And since Valve was focused on their own game, apparently they weren't being as receptive as maybe they should have been. So it's good to see these, you know, obviously extremely talented devs. Leonard Boyarsky, of course, had a lot of history with, with uh, Diablo as well. He was one of their lore managers for Diablo 3. Um, but then uh, Tim Kane, of course, had been involved with Obsidian for a while now. I don't know where he was before that. I don't. I think he took some time off, if I remember correctly, into real estate, but I can't remember. The gameplay here, this looks good. Like, this is kind of what I expect from a really good RPG. It doesn't need to be cutting-edge gameplay. As long as it can give me, like, an immersive experience, like, this clearly looks like... It looks a little kind of arcadey, which is totally okay because it's an RPG and RPGs aren't supposed to be realistic. But I, but I certainly like how the gameplay feels like, um, I don't know, your, your shots seem pretty connective and it doesn't look nearly as clunky as I remember like Mass Effect 1 and, and Mass Effect 2 even in some cases. Is that, is that all the gameplay we're going to get? 
showing us some stealth aspects. Okay. I didn't I didn't even know there was some stealth aspects. I'll be honest, I'm not really a fan of like the UI. Like the UI is not really kind of resonating with me, but to be completely honest, <clears throat> UI sometimes in RPGs, it kind of goes with it. You you get used to it once you start playing the game. Like Dragon Age comes to mind. Um of course Mass Effect comes to mind. Even even like Neverwinter Nights and Baldur's Gates like essays of text comes to mind it still feels like i still love reading that kind of stuff i love seeing it in like kotor 2 and and uh, maybe even like dark betrayal those games huh i i don't know i'm i'm really eager to see what these guys have in store they're amazing game developers and two two in particular that i very much appreciate and think do amazing uh work Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, one of my favorite games. I also thought that um, uh, off the top of my head, I, I, I'm for some reason my memory is leaving me right now. But it's the other game that they did, um, the RPG Ar Arcanum. Arcanum, sorry, uh, Arcanum's another like sleeper hit. Uh, unfortunately, you know, plagued with many, many, many <laughs> performance issues, like most of their projects. So hopefully, they've had some time um to iron out a lot of their issues uh, i think that that's probably very likely and the reason why i say that is because when you look at um their previous situation when they were together at troika um with also i can't remember the other guy at the top of my head but when they were together they were essentially a company that was working for hire and what that kind of means is that if you don't have clients and you can't get clients you kind of die you're you're not really like a business per se. You're kind of more like a contractor almost. And their company was very much set up like a contractor. They never really had time to set their feet. They never really got any funding done. They weren't so good at the business aspects. So even though they made really cool, iconic games that people love, um, they were kind of posthumously loved. <laughs> they were they were like the same case as uh, like Van Gogh, right? Van Gogh in his end days was like a broke, you know depressed and like like half deaf you know artist right uh who was probably going to die of starvation but in his later life would have been a multimillionaire. it's it's kind of like that's that that's the analogy that i use with troika it's kind of like they did this great art that wasn't really realized until much later uh and unfortunately that's not good enough for a company All right, let's go ahead and move on to some more Fallout 76 news. One thing I want to preface this with is, did we already stop talking about this on the show? Is everyone tired of talking about Fallout 76? It's always in the news, and I feel like maybe we actually give it more publicity than it should have <laughs> in certain regards. But then I guess, because you know, at the end of the day, like negative publicity is still publicity for them. So sometimes I kind of, I struggle with this. We even talk about them anymore. But there's just, but there's even more. There's even more. As you guys see on screen right now, there's the whole drama about the $200 Fallout 76 edition that was supposed to have this cool looking bag. And what they delivered instead ended up being nylon, which is like literally a form of a trash bag. So it didn't look super epic and certainly didn't look like it was advertised in the picture when you look at the picture here 
right? That clearly is not a, uh, a what do they call it? A nylon trash <laughs> delivers nylon trash. Uh, it's funny when you see these websites do certain articles like this. They do have redeeming qualities to them. I don't hate everything about, you know, mass journalism. I mean, what what is there to say about this? It's just like Bethesda. Just I feel like they keep shooting themselves in their in the foot at this point. Like you you, you start to think like they can't just be this stupid. So like, what exactly are they doing here? And it makes me just realize that they've had a fan base that they've been able to sell essentially subpar games to, but it's been made up for because of their mod community. It, I guess it kind of does make sense that they would be so tone deaf in a way, right? <clears throat> They're using an engine that, although is certainly getting new updates, it's looking to have some of the same issues that it's been having, right? <clears throat> Excuse me especially in regards to uh, multiplayer titles. I mean, do we even have to mention the MMOs that have also used Gamebryo? Uh, Rift? Warhammer? Dark Age of Camelot? Do those games remind you particularly of ones that had, like, amazing performance? Definitely not. <laughs> uh, Rift and uh, Warhammer in particular, which is the newer brand of Gamebryo, was even worse than Dark Age of Camelot, which was crazy. <clears throat> a law firm is looking into class action lawsuit against Bethesda? Huh. That's interesting. Interesting. Alright, what other link do we have here? This was the other shit that I found about uh, Bethesda. It's another clown fiesta where Bethesda support apparently leaks customer names. And when, I, when you scroll down, you can see an example where somebody logged into their uh, site their support site and they were getting these like receipt information they were getting like personal information phone numbers like credit card like it's insane they were getting insane types of information apparently from what this person reports uh because they got this whenever they logged in and unless this person's some insanely like next level hacker Bethesda in response says, Hi guys, we resolved this. <laughs> oh, I, I feel for the community guy, the community manager or whatever else. I used to, like, first off, let me say, I used to very much respect community managers and there's still, you know, a couple community managers that I respect in gaming. But generally speaking, I've kind of lost a lot of respect for community managers because as these companies have gotten bigger and bigger, community managers these days are just basically a mouthpiece who has to like find ways to politically, you know, correct speak, you know, something, right? Like they have to be like, how can I say this in the most like way that I won't get in trouble or people will get mad at me, but not really say anything because I can't actually answer the question. And you look at like this kind of thing and where the guy's like, hi guys, we resolved the issue. That guy probably was like agonizing over what to message and he's just like, oh my God, they're going to fire me. Oh my God, they're going to fire me. Like, what am I going to say? 
Dude, I, I can't think of anything. <laughs> I just say, hi guys. We've resolved this issue. Yeah, that's what I'll say. <laughs> Fallout 76 is indeed such a beautiful train wreck. And it really just has me kind of scratching my head. Because I really think that Bethesda was well aware of this. Not this particular issue, but of the game's lack of quality. But had gotten to the point to where they no longer wanted to bankroll it. And they wanted to see if they could just get by with their previous approaches. Which is, uh, it'll be broke at first, but then we'll kind of fix it over time. And, and other people will fix it as well. Bank, definitely banking on the other players part. But they don't even have mod support in the game. So that's out of the question. The game was obviously rushed, right? I mean, I think they only had, what, less than three years of development time? The game is not even meant to be played in multiplayer, and so now it is in multiplayer, and apparently that's a big reason why they can't have AI, at least from what I hear, and that's a little bit of speculation. <laughs> I just, what else do we say? Like, And then they release these patch notes. This is the last thing we got about Fallout 76 today. They release these patch notes, or don't release these patch notes, but people data mine these patch notes, and essentially figure out about a bunch of different uh, nerfs, like stealth nerfs. They learn about things that were altered and changed. And of course, some people are just reporting things from placebo because they think that something's different or whatever else. Basically, the community just starts saying to, to Bethesda, can you guys just release the damn patch notes? Just like let us know like what you're doing and be honest with us. Normally, this wouldn't be that big of an issue because companies do this shit all the time, especially at large scale. But I think it's just like the community is just so fed up with them feeling like they're not involved and they probably aren't in this case. Because it seems like with these big companies, everything's being run through two different channels and then getting to the audience. So it goes to the developers and then it goes to typically their handlers or publishers or investors or whoever else. And then it gets to the community. And the community's like, wait, this isn't what we asked or what we said. The developers are like, what the hell can we do? And so they have to essentially play cover-up. And the publishers are just like, you're not going to get anything from them. <laughs> That's typically what it seems like. Classic software dev. If you put in your patch notes, it means people know about it now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it just seems like you're hiding something at that point, right? But please, let's let's try and move on to something else. Not Fallout, right? I'm I'm as tired of it as you guys are. Ooh, let's talk about the Epic Store. That's one thing I definitely, as I'm losing my voice, wanted to talk about. So, as the article on screen says, Epic launched a new digital game store with 88% revenue going to the developers. And that is in the headline because, of course, that's one of their biggest selling points. That's also their most competitive selling point, right? That's the point that they know that they can already compete with um, <clears throat> with Valve in that sense. Because uh, I think they might even tell you guys the statistics. Okay, here we go. Epic Game Store revenue split. So you have a 65-30, apparently. Wow, 
Sixty-five thirty. Oh. Oh, with a five, on Steam. Unity on Steam is a seventy thirty. So they basically got them beat by eighteen percent. Yeah, it says that Steam would ha would okay to get anywhere close to the same. Oh, I see. Okay. So that that actually is a good point. Um, just so people know, it says to get anywhere close to the same revenue split on Steam, a creator would have to make fifty million in revenue on Steam alone before getting to an eighty twenty split. So meaning that realistically, uh, the smaller devs, the ones who actually couldn't afford it, are going to have to pay more money because they don't get any special treatment because they don't make big sales. And uh, it looks like Epic is essentially trying to say that hey, your your money is good here. Sorry, your game is good here. We'll give you even more money because we want you to thrive, right? Yeah, uh, Taj, that's, I mean, that's a good point. A lot of people are going to ask, well, wh why would we go to, to Epic Store whenever Steam has a, a very, very large revenue, sorry, very, very large market share, right? It probably has the largest, and I couldn't tell you possibly how much, but it has to be in like the 60s to 70s, right? Percentage-wise, I mean, again, that's just, I guess, a hypothesis for me. Certainly not couched in. But certainly has to be something like that, right? They have a massive market share. So it, it can always seem like a, a daunting task to want to go against such a titan. But in this case, Epic Games has had a lot of money, but they also are making a lot of money with their own particular games. So what that means is that same thing that EA did with their origin store, which Probably, you know, even more horrible than both of these stories combined. And it's that they, they no longer want to have to pay these big licensing fees right, to use the product, uh, to use Steam. They don't want to give up 30%, right? That's too much for them. When you're talking 100 million, 30% is a lot of money, right? It's 30 million. Uh, and, I mean, games cost more than that even. So it's, it can seem like daunting in that respect to, to want to stick with Steam. But at the end of the day, this is this just reminds me of another origin. I, I don't know how serious they. I mean, I guess they wouldn't they wouldn't advertise that they're giving, you know, developers more of a split if they weren't trying to attract other developers. But on like I guess on like precursory reaction, I would just say that this just reminds me of EA doing Origin, which is just we want the money in our store even if it's less money, right? Because if you do the math, right? Let's say there's a hundred million sales of a game. Steam wants 30 million of it. Well, let's say that Epic on its own or EA on its own with Origin Store sells 70 million, right? They've essentially sold the same amount of money. See what I'm saying? So even if they like made less sales, right? Uh, it's still even for them. So maybe they like their chances, but they probably also like to have their own control. Um, that's another big thing for these huge companies. And Epic, make no mistake, it's not Epic Games of Unreal 2. <laughs> this is Epic Games, a corporation, right? Like, this is a, a massive company that has, you know, its majority essentially owned by Tencent. And as somebody was mentioning, I think this is more of Tencent saying, we're going to use Epic Games' name, their platform, and we want to create our own rival to rival Steam so we can put our own Tencent games on there. Hmm. I just figured that out myself. 
Maybe that is what they're trying to do. Sometimes we think on the fly. But the one I saw from Epic was insanely stupid. Also, the store does not comply with GDPR law in the EU last I checked. I saw the same thing. I don't know if it's confirmed yet, but I, but I would uh, be a little bit, I guess, cautious of that. I also hear Epic's not going to pay or going to pay influencers to attract people to the games on their platform. Huh. Yeah, if they're successful in the China, they don't need the U.S. market. That's absolutely true. Um, Korean companies have proven this time and time again with their games, right? They don't need to be successful in America or in Europe if they're already widely successful in Korea. Because like, success in Korea is far greater than it is in America. And what I mean by that is that Korea is a, is a, is a uh, country that's putting out billions of dollars in microtransactions. You're talking about like insane, insane amounts of money uh, are being uh, thrown around. Even when you look at like their mobile games, when I when I did the Ion video, you can see that NCSoft alone made like a couple hundred million in just like three months <laughs> with their lineage mobile game, right? Like Korea, you're talking big money, right? And not to mention. In the case of like NCSoft, many companies in Korea, the publishers, are also the developers. So they get an even bigger share. So the, the money we're talking about in Korea is totally, totally big. Epic canceled their new uh, Unreal Tournament game. Yeah, that I kind of expected. Because it seemed like they kept it on the, on the um, barn, like the, on the, sorry, on the back burner. Barn burner is like a, a fight. <laughs> um <laughs> man that that definitely shows that i'm from the south when i say a barn burner <laughs> anyway um they kind of left ut uh the unreal tournament you know what was it what were they calling that one for or just they were just calling it unreal tournament that was kind of shelved man it, it was in like beta slash alpha for a long time and it seemed like they were not giving it any big like changes it didn't even have capture the flag uh and, and uh, other game modes like that it certainly just seemed like one of those games where they were they were hedging their bets on something else. And I think Epic, whenever Fortnite paid out as well as it did, as they proved with a kind of Paragon and the narrative surrounding Paragon, the video I did on it, they they just needed one game to go big. Once that game went big, it looked like they were going to go all in on it because they started to kind of just not care about Unreal Tournament, not care about Paragon. And um, and slowly just sort of, well, I, I don't want to say they didn't care about Paragon. They they handled it incorrectly, probably because of not giving it enough care. But they, I wouldn't say that they were like malicious or anything. It was just more of like put up or shut up kind of thing. I don't know. We'll see about this. I I think that this could be maybe ten cents play and getting involved in the uh, video game platform market, video game store market, whatever you'd like to call it. Hmm. They even got Tim Sweeney talking about it. You know it's something whenever they they wake the programmer out of his sleep to go uh, do some business work. <laughs> Oops. Can't wait to have 10 plus launchers in my PC just to play some games. I know for us, it's not necessarily the best. As consumers, let's be honest. Us consumers, we have different, um, we have different needs, right? We have different things that we want to satisfy. It's the same thing happens in MMA, right? I watch a lot of uh, uh, mixed martial arts fights. And there's a particularly big 
uh, organization called the UFC. And now they're not the only organization. There's many other organizations, but they're the biggest. And so what usually happens is people will say, like fans will see the rhetoric along the lines of, oh no, so-and-so fighter left the UFC. This sucks because now they're going to go to some other uh, fight thing and I have to watch multiple fight things. What's well, like, but if, what if he's getting paid more, right? It's better for his career. <laughs> like what if it's like a better like career switch? You wouldn't question that in real life, but you question it more so in sports and games because people have these crazy loyalties to certain things. Um, but it wouldn't be as like different of an experience, I guess, uh, to encounter. But yeah, point being, I brought up that uh, comparison because sure, it's more convenient for us as consumers to have them all under one kind of like platform. So it's just easy to get to. But if we want these games to and companies to kind of negotiate better business, maybe maybe take their value where they think it's it's more so needed, protected, then I totally I'm okay with that. Like if you're a company and you just think, you know what, I I'd love to go to Steam because I, I want to get all of the exposure that Steam is going to give me. I totally understand that. Even if it's going to take a big share of your revenue, if your revenue otherwise would have been 10% of the sales because you don't have the reach that Steam does, well, I mean, it's kind of hard not to take that kind of deal. Because people ask all the time, like, why do these companies get, why do these uh, companies create, like, you know, these, these people create companies and then give up control of the company? Why does that happen? Well, I mean, it happens because they get to that very last leg of the race and they think to themselves, I can fold because I don't have the money or I can get somebody to take, uh, you know, a large stake of my company, provide me with uh, the funds that I need, the capital that I need, and I can keep afloat just a little bit longer, maybe even long enough to launch the game, right? That, that's what happens. And then they're like, damn. Either don't launch the game or launch the game. But launch the game now where I'm kind of no longer the de facto leader of my company. That's usually what happens with a lot of companies. They, they start taking investments on because they want to do bigger, better things. But with that comes more problems. Uh, or with more resources comes more problems because now people are going to be like, well, we want an investment board and you only get one chair. Wait a minute. I only get one chair in my, in my whole company? Yeah, you get one chair. You're a CEO, buddy. We have four chairs because we put in all of this money. And next thing you know, they want a new CEO. That CEO leaves and exits the company AKA they're told, hey buddy, you're gonna exit the company. And he's like, all right, I'm gonna exit the company. But that's how that kind of stuff works. Also, you can check out Tencent's stock, huh? That's, that's a really good point. What, what, is it, what is their stock sitting at, sitting at right now? 38.91, uh, hmm. I don't want to give you guys stock tips, but um, for people who are more knowledgeable of such things, I would look into that. I would look into that. I'm not kidding. If my hunch is right about what Tencent's trying to do, and they actually do bring more of their games, including future games, big games like Riot, Riot games and that type of stuff, if they could bring that to the platform, even if it's just successful in China, it's going to be a major success. As uh, Upson Lander, I think, pointed out. 
I mean, if they did a League of Legends 2 and they launched it on Epic Games platform, come on, guys. Come on, guys. You're telling me that wouldn't be massive? That would be huge. That would be huge. Okay. Oh, yeah. One last thing of the current news segment is I wanted to talk about some Smash Brothers Ultimate. I had mentioned this previously, and I also mentioned that I wasn't entirely sure on Twitter how I would cover content of Smash Brothers, considering I'm not a, you know, I'm not like a amazing, like I just started playing Smash, essentially, but I really like the game, and I've kind of been obsessively playing it. Um, but I'm not sure what kind of content I'm going to do yet regarding it. I'm sure I'll find something, and if I don't do anything, then maybe I'll just stream it for you guys to watch. Um, that way I can play something and I can talk to you guys, since it's one of those games where it's kind of easy to, to chat with your audience because there's downtime after rounds and that sort of stuff. But right now, uh, what I was showing on screen is that they're sitting at a 94 overall rating according to Open Critic. And if you scroll down here, you'll see, of course, all the big names giving it 90s and 9s, etc., etc., Point being, the game is basically universally liked. I don't see a whole lot of negative criticism, except for one particular thing. And this particular thing just reminds me of Blizzard in a nutshell. And I don't know what it is about these companies being so absolutely tone deaf when it comes to online features. Okay, so for people who don't know what the situation is in Smash Brothers Ultimate Online right now, it's a great, amazing game. Love the game. The online just makes you scratch your head. Okay, so there's a preferred rule set in the matchmaking. And you can type in, hmm, I prefer 1v1, 7 minutes, no hazards, omega form map, which just means a flat map, with no items. <clears throat> and guess what? You'll get put in an FFA game. A lot of the time, you get put in an FFA game. And you're just like, but I, I just told you my, pref my preferred like kind of play. Why are you matching me up in this other kind of play, period? Well, that's because these companies, they do it as a preferred system. It doesn't actually lock you into a matchmaking. Huh? I'll say that again. It doesn't actually lock you into a matchmaking. They do that because they want you to get matches quicker, right? So you'll get a 10-second match, right? You'll pop really quickly, but it'll be a, a free-for-all, which is not what you want, and it's not what you put in your preferred system. And I, I bring this up because it reminds me of Blizzard in a lot of ways, where it's crazy how these companies are so absolutely ignorant of how ranked features work, or even just how normal matchmaking works. You look at how Blizzard handled uh, Overwatch, for example, and I mean, even now, look at how they're handling the game. The ranked is just horrible. And I mean, you look at StarCraft, and it's like, they had this amazingly competitive StarCraft game, and then kind of just like fumbled it into the end zone because of all of these stupid businesses they sort of made. Point being is like StarCraft sure was had an amazing ladder system. StarCraft 2 has an amazing ladder system. But you look at like newer Blizzard titles and they're kind of getting worse. And it's crazy to see Nintendo in this case with Smash Brothers Ultimate. They're also making the same kind of stupid mistakes, which is essentially not introducing an actual matchmaking system, one that actually matches you based on your skill and based on the types of modes that you want to play, right? And another one where, uh, essentially, they could have just added a competitive mode. There is an elite smash mode, but here's the kicker. 
it's still not enforced 1v1, which is the main competitive form of the game. So why would you remove solo play, 1v1 play, and duo play, which were things that were prevalent in the previous version of the game on the Wii U? Uh, it's like, I don't, I don't understand. It's crazy. It's crazy to me that they don't just add solo, duo, right? Why not? Or, or why not just add ranked mode, competitive mode? What's so bad about adding these kinds of ranked modes? So, is some, there's some kind of reason why. Is it because of the backlash? Are they afraid of like negative stigma, a toxic crowd exactly? Like Blizzard, again, has gone through the exact same thing where for the longest time in, in Overwatch, uh, there was you know no real matchmaking to speak of, right? And then their first rank system was utterly horrible as well. And, well, now their current rank system is probably just as bad, but that's more so because of design reasons, I think. Actually, I take that back. They, don't, they still don't have solo queue yet. I take that back. <laughs> I, I can't trust a game that doesn't have solo queue. It, it's a bit bizarre to me that you wouldn't have separate queues. But uh, anyway. Only ad blocker developer that didn't sell out and whitelist a bazillion websites. Oh. Okay, I guess I'm not really sure guys are talking about uh but that's kind of my thoughts about smash that's the worst thing about it right now then the smash brothers first off feels super crisp yes it has a delay lag but most games do and in this case i think that's something that could be fixed with with uh potential like patches and such it also certainly has some kind of strange issues with input lag um in particular when you do their, uh, they have this new feature, right, that they implemented in Smash called a short hop, an auto short hop. And what it does is when you type uh, X and A together, it automatically short hop aerials for you. Um, so it, it does a little hop and does an attack. Problem with it is that it's so sensitive to directional movement that in order to try and get your guy to do a neutral, which is not moving, but also have momentum carrying him forward, it's a very tricky kind of setup. So essentially they added a feature to add convenience, but what they did ironically is make it even harder. <laughs> like technically <laughs> it's even harder now to do certain kind of movements. And mind you, that's a, that's a design aspect. That's something that takes time in order to figure out as and diagnose as an issue. It's just one that the fighting game community is particularly savvy in because they, they don't like games that have input lag. Um, and, and have things that don't feel responsive, right? Because that's a big thing about fighting games is feeling kind of connected to your character. But anyway, that's that's all I have about Smash Brothers Ultimate. I just like to talk about it because I find it a, as a very interesting and fun game. But I'm not um, particularly, I guess, married to it or anything. Okay. Sorry, everyone was talking about my ad block or something. All right, let's move to the next segment of the podcast, um, which is, I think today will be the second to last segment. <clears throat> Let me change my, we're doing it live. MMOs on the go. And the first thing that I wanted to talk about today in the realm of MMORPGs is, well, a bit of a wild card. <laughs> Sorry, I just thought of that pun on the spot. But Wildcard, the developer slash creator behind Ark Survival Evolved, is creating a new massive pirate MMO called Atlas. 
This kind of came out of nowhere, hence my wildcard pun. And it's supposedly supposed to be 1,200 times bigger than Ark Survival Evolved. Apparently, there's some new type of technology that allows them or is going to allow them in the future because they technically didn't promise it yet, but is going to allow them to have as many as like 40,000 people in a seamless world. I'm not exactly sure if like if this is a real thing, if they can actually deliver on this yet. But as this guy says on screen here, um, they have shipbuilding. There's AI crew. You can add crewmen to your ship. I read this in an article as well. There, you can customize aspects of your ship as well. There's ship-to-ship -ship combat. There's there's ground combat on ships. Um, I even think that they, um, if I remember correctly, that's not, that's not what I'm. Sorry, right, I thought about a different game for a second. But yes, there there are a lot of what ifs with this, right? The creator is, well, the creator behind Ark Survival Evolved, which was the game. Wildcard was the company that did Ark Survival Evolved, as well as doing that Dark and Light copycat, which, by the way, uses the same engine, so it feels pretty similar and clunky in a lot of different ways. That's kind of what I'm expecting with this game. I'm expecting it to be the same engine and be just as clunky and over-promise and under-deliver. And for people that don't know why Wildcard kind of has a bad rep in regards to Ark Survival Evolved... They were the company that, while in the early access, released an expansion. Yes. I, as far as I know, one of the few companies who ever managed to do something as silly as that. Before your game actually launches, launch another game. It's like, why not just finish that game? Anyway, Ark Survival Evolved is out now, but it's had tremendous amounts of issues, and, it's, and these are well documented. I won't even bother to go through all of these because, well, it's it's I feel like it's well known at this point, but Point being is there's a lot of what ifs that go with this, and there actually is. A, you guys can see what I, what I've been watching. Um, there actually is a gameplay trailer, so let's watch that. Looks looks a little clunky, but you kind of expect that from you know Wildcard. They're probably using their a similar engine, right? Wilhelm scream, okay. Some respect there. Things look very floaty to me. What I mean by floaty, it looks like you're not really seeing the impact of your abilities. I'll be, I'll be honest, I think it has a good presentation, and it's certainly a good video to showcase features, but you can see obvious frame drops whenever the cannonballs are going through the air. And I, I can especially tell because I have a 144 hertz monitor. But I, I can tell whenever things seem really, really slow, right? The game, like right there, there's a lot of frame drop right there. It probably dropped like 10, 10 to 20 FPS right there. That was a pretty significant drop. It's, it's again, it's a good presentation, but I'm not convinced that they can pull it off. They don't have a track record, which proves that they can pull it off. And certain things about the combat... Let me turn this damn music off, because this shit's obnoxiously loud. It looks very floaty. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Let's slow it down. I forgot what frame by frame is, but... Give me. Okay. 
So you notice how whenever they're walking, their feet aren't really like colliding with the ground. You see, you see that how it, how it like, it's like it kind of collides with the ground, but it seems very floaty. See that guy's feet right there too. Look at their feet. It's very floaty because it's like essentially not an actual physics system, which always has me worried in games like this. When you don't have like real physics systems and they're kind of like more like garbled together physics systems, it's quite apparent. I mean, there's a reason why Jedi Academy, <laughs> put it this way, this game looks way less polished than Jedi Academy did and Jedi Academy came out in 04. But, but you see the animation here? Essentially, it's not actual physics. It's that he had the block animation up and he swung because if you if you pay attention, when you see the way that he once he swings, he's so close to him already. In a physics based system, he he would have clanged a lot faster. These are just little things that I notice whenever I look at like gameplay, and here you can see all the choppiness, right? Even even in slow motion, you can you see how it like even even the the light texture loading in right there. Point being, this looks very, very early on. I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is, by the way, supposed to launch on early access this month. I'll I'll be there. I'll I'll do a video about it. I'll do a stream on it. Yeah, I'll do a video on it. Put it that way. I'll be glad to be there to put a video or do a video on this because I want to be there to chronicle exactly what kind of experience this is going to be <laughs> this is going to be an early act this is going to be an early access and then they're going to launch an expansion for it actually that's what's going to happen anyway i meme too much let's move on to my next bit of news in the world of mmos and this particular one is uh close to i guess the community right now so for those who don't uh, know already legends of aria delayed their steam release until january and i think that that's first off totally okay for an early access game especially one that has such a small company and community uh like legends of aria they can't afford to do it right in a lot of cases i mean i've seen many games die like especially like indie mmos they die because they launch on steam but they're already so unfinished they get review review bombed and then they now like they basically never recover and so I can't blame companies for wanting to do that. But one thing that has been happening a lot lately, or actually I shouldn't say a lot, but it's been a persistent thing with Legends of Aria, is Legends of Aria... Um, let's see if I can... Pull, I just wanted to pull up an article on screen. Ah, oh, I just go to the Twitter. This is their official Twitter. Okay, so good news. The servers had been down the past couple of uh, days. Apparently, there was some kind of issue with backend and characters not saving. Some crazy bug happened in one of the cities where people were getting PK'd <laughs> by the guards and shit. But apparently, they're, they're targeting to bring the servers back up today. So this is actually some new bit of news that I didn't know until now. Um, but yeah, I'll make a video about Legends of Aria soon. I think I'll, I might wait until January to do it just because that's when they're going to do their Steam launch. But to be honest, I might already do one um, just because, first off, as people have already known who follow our Discord, I have been playing the game and playing it rather casually now since Smash came out and since, well, last week I was gone basically the whole week for work. 
Uh, but I've been playing it pretty casually, and and I see a lot of like good core systems there, ones that I think that could really be worked on. And so I'm actually in the process of getting a private server set up, a private shard. Or, well, it's not going to be private, but it, I guess it is a shard of sorts. And um, we found out recently, a friend of mine and I found out that there is actually a lot that you can edit in the game. So we might be actually looking to do our own custom uh, community server, which will essentially not just be Legends of Aria, our version. It's going to be, it's going to be um, a different game. We have a different vision than the development team behind Legends of Aria. And that's the beauty of their shard system. Someone like us can essentially take uh, a server and customize it exactly to our liking and then kind of pitch it to a different audience. So it's kind of like when you allow people to mod your game, you create like endless replayability because now we could essentially create a different kind of game, right? Using the same kind of core systems, which are already there. Now, one thing I will say about Legends of Aria, it has problems in a couple of regards. It has problems in its melee combat feel very, very uninspiring. It's very, like, it feels disconnected. Half the time, it says you're out of range, so you have to kind of stick on your target, which doesn't really feel epic at all, right? Um, other problems that you run into with melee is it just feels boring because whenever you activate your ability, it doesn't instantly activate. It does it on your next swing, which is kind of strange as well. And even though auto attack animations don't reset whenever you move around with melee weapons, they do when you move around with range weapons, which is another thing that kind of doesn't really make sense in a game in 2018, because if for, for metagamers out there, that essentially means you can't attack move, right? You can move and then attack, but you can't attack, move, attack. Uh, the simple reason is because when you have a melee weapon in Legends of Aria, you can actually walk around and swing at people, right? No problems. Um, the attack animation doesn't reset every time you move, but when you shoot a bow, it resets every single time. So what that means is that every time I stand still, I start the animation to shoot my bow. If I move at any time, I automatically cancel it. Point being is, this is a kind of experience example uh, someone brought up Neverwinter Nights, where somebody like us, a group of you know modders and amateur developers, uh, we we can we can show up and be like, huh, we see some obvious things that we've learned from you know, many years of playing games like this. So we could like do it in a different way. And this type, this type of game allows for that. So I, I certainly hope to see more games like this in the future where like Neverwinter Nights, you can kind of operate like almost like a custom server of sorts. Oh, and I didn't even mention that they're planning on making it to where you can transfer. As long as you have similar rule sets, you can transfer from different rules, uh, sorry, shards to other shards. I don't know when that's going to be planned, but it, it's like a really cool idea as well. So I just wanted to talk about Legends of Aria a little bit more today. I was actually going to talk about their downtime and kind of um, explain that to them. But since that's already coming back up, I don't really think I need to. So let me go back to uh, my little document here. So I wanted to bring up a little bit of news about Daybreak. Now, there's been a rumor that circulated the web that Daybreak might be building a new Planetside game. And apparently this is because they filed a trademark for Planetside Arena. People are speculating that Planetside Arena is a new Planetside game that's essentially trying to, you know, cash in, so to say, on the uh, current Battle Royale trend. Now, we don't really know if that's true. We don't know what Arena consists of, how many players is in an Arena. We don't know anything else other than, well, it's just a rumor that's circulating right now. 
I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if it was some class-based battle royale, as as the article says. Like I, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. The thing is, is that Planetside, while not a bad game, doesn't have the mechanics that are good enough to compete with other hero shooters or class-based uh, shooters or even just battle royales. Right? It doesn't have the 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 capabilities of competing against those games. So it's it's strange that they would go the opposite way. For a game that's typically based on more kind of like macro play, why not just go more macro? I mean, when I, when, I guess when I think about this, I think if I'm playing it side, playing side devs or whatever else, I'm thinking in order to compete better or to get more market share, we just make our game bigger essentially because that's what people like about Planet Side. They like the big aspects of it, right? But it's strange that they would be like, huh, let's shrink it. Unless they're having financial issues. And that's kind of what I'm thinking is, I think they're having financial issues, which by the way is proven um, in my next link. But they had essentially, yeah, I'll show you guys. Apparently there was a, um, another round of layoffs that they suffered from Daybreak recently. But apparently these layoffs didn't affect their actual their actual planet side team. So as as it says on screen, uh, Daybreak suffered a layoff of between sixty to seventy people, and uh, Smedley, which is okay. Let's talk about this. Sorry, my chair keeps falling back down. <laughs> let's talk about this. What what are you doing here, Smedley? What are you doing here? This is like some insane random virtue signaling. That's just <laughs> He's confused he's greatly confused me, man. Very sorry to hear about the layoffs at Daybreak. Those are good people that should be working there 10 years from now if things were being well run. Really really angry right now. It's December. This is how you treat employees. Come on. I don't know if you're the person that's qualified to be saying such things because last I checked when you worked at Daybreak, the reason why you actually got fired was because you said that you were coming after a little kid who got caught for hacking. <laughs> I, I feel like he would just stay away from Twitter at this point. But to, to get even more, I guess, retrospective about Smedley, he was around during EverQuest. He was around during Star Wars Galaxies. He was around during a billion other Sony games because he was the CEO of Sony Online Entertainment, right? You can't be involved in all of that shit and not come out at least like some kind of tar on you. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't walk out of that pit and not have some tar on your feet. What I'm trying to say is that you're not a saint. <laughs> I don't know why you're taking to to Twitter to virtue signal for employees that, frankly speaking, you kind of fucked over based on your own actions. So it's it's just strange that he would feel this need to say something now when it's kind of like you left the company before because of, you know, essentially not really calculating how you should be speaking as a CEO, which I will admit, you know, 
certainly don't think saying coming after a kid is fairly like egregious, but it certainly is um, maybe a little bit tone deaf, especially to be doing on Twitter. Because it's essentially like snitching on yourself. That's the hilarious thing about Twitter. It's like, it's the place where you show everyone either like how virtuous you are or it's where you show everyone how idiotic you are. I feel like it's very rarely the other aspects. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that, that was just a weird thing to see Smedley talking about it. But apparently the team that was uh, fired to further explain is, uh, it's, it, they explained it. They were working on some private projects. Again, very, very hard to know for sure. But apparently they were working on a secret game with a top IP at the Austin studio, which is funny because I live in Austin. Maybe I should go ask him myself, but I don't think they'd let me in. Um, so as this person, you know, explains, seems like the other MMOs are safe. But I'm going to actually disagree. I don't think they are. Daybreak, first and foremost, is an investment-minded company, and they have been um, since they became Daybreak. What that means is that they don't really know how video games necessarily work at the higher level, and they're the ones informing the people who do of how to make their certain games, which is already kind of like a problematic scenario in the first place, but even more problematic when you think about how Daybreak already has shown that they can take games that are good and actually make them worse. So it, it kind of... You start to think to yourself, if they no longer have the same leadership, if they if they no longer have the same even just developers working around them, you can't you can't really expect the same results anymore. And al although SOE certainly had some cool games and some cool ideas, when they became Daybreak, at that point, I mean, the newest IPs that they had created were let's see, um, they did uh, EverQuest Landmark, which was you know pretty horrible. Um, they did H1Z1, which had peaks and valleys and peaks and valleys and peaks and valleys, essentially because they don't know how to, you know, design their own game. And now it's, I would say, probably dying off, just about. Uh, their esports league just had a massive failure, unfortunately, for them. Point being is Daybreak is right there on that limit. And one thing that kind of annoys me is when people read articles like this. Somebody responded to me on Twitter about this. And no offense to you, man, but this kind of rhetoric very much annoys me. People say... Oh, but the people that were laid off are part of this other, um, you know, they, they're working on this other game. You know why people get laid off for, for working on other games, right? Because they're not successful. So what I'm saying is that let's just stop other people from being laid off ultimately if the biggest measure is success, right? Nothing is. So you're never really safe, right, when you work in a company. Because if you're not worth essentially the money that they're paying you, or they don't think you're worth the money that they're paying you, you can get fired. Unfortunately, in video game, uh, in the video game industry, people are expected to work insane hours or kind of be politely pushed out the door. So everybody sits around and does these insane amounts of hours and, and work and whatever else because they essentially don't necessarily know any better. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's, it's, I, I think it's a little bit foolish to think that Daybreak laying off 60 to 70 people all of those people were involved in this private project. There's no way that we can confirm that. There's no way we can confirm that. They can say that they're all from a private project, but how do we know that exactly, right? Unless people make a, a stink about it, and it's probably not going to be the company. So it might be people outside. Maybe they could find these certain types of people. It's possible, right? My, my point being is that 
you can't just immediately take a statement like that and just be like, oh yeah, like that means that the company is, the other games are still doing fine. Like everything's, in, guys, Wildstar went through the same thing, right? Carbine went through the same thing. Like these, the reason why I can, I can feel confident whenever I make a death of a game on a particular game is that I wait for enough evidence to feel like my conclusion is, you know, just a, just about perfect, right? Now, the way that I arrive at that conclusion is certainly different than probably uh, maybe other people have uh, different methods. Not to mention, doesn't mean that my exact uh, details surrounding the, you know, breakdown of a company are right. Not to say that I'm infallible, but what I'm saying is when you look at Wildstar, for example, the reason why I could determine that the game wasn't going to do well is simply based on financial data. Like, it, I don't, I'm not clairvoyant. I don't, I don't know anything. I played the game in closed... Okay, I take that back. I played the game in, in, like, a closed beta before just about anybody else played the game. So I guess I knew back then that it had problems. So I, I guess I knew before many people that it had certain problems. And I also was there at launch. So I, I suffered through all of that as well. Point being, I guess I... In particular respects, I do have a lot of uh, insider knowledge. Um, but in, in, in regards to Wildstar... Yeah, I guess sometimes I take for, for for granted how much insider knowledge I had. But I actually, I used to speak with the, the PvP developer. Um, I used to speak with um, some of the other developers early on whenever we would do Guild versus Guild. Uh, well, I think they were called War Plots, but it was essentially Guild versus Guild. Point being is that, in, in some cases, sure, my insider knowledge or data can, can be helpful. But, for example, if, if someone asks, like, why did I want to do a video on Rift? The crazy thing about the Rift story is that when I chose to do a video on Rift, that's before they declared that they were in maintenance mode, which they recently declared, by the way. If you're wondering why I was able to determine that that game was pretty close to its its uh, uh, chopping block, it's because of a bunch of other factors. For example, the company being acquired, Tryon being acquired by Gamago, is a cause for uh, concern whenever it comes to products because now it becomes a lot more about penny saving, right? Penny pinching and trying to cut costs where you can cut it. And if a game is no longer as successful, it's not going to get new content made for it, which inevitably kills the game. So in the case of Rift, it was clear after a year, a year and a half, they were no longer releasing another raid. And when they did release raids, they were just releasing previous raids on harder difficulties, which is a telltale sign that a company doesn't have the essentially developing power in order to create content that it needs to create. SWOTOR is very similar. That's why SWOTOR is taking so long with this particular expansion that they're working on is because they've been working on it for a long time now, <laughs> right? It doesn't have the same developer, to, uh, you know, development size that it used to have. And when you look at uh, Rift, for example, you can determine that Tryon is in a bad position or sorry, was in a bad position before because you look at where, how much money they started to take in, right? These other aspects. What I'm trying to say is that if you just hand wave things, Whenever you see bits of data and, and clues, so to say, right? When you see a clue like this come up, don't be so quick to disregard it and just be like, oh, it's not necessarily related because ultimately that's how we build a timeline, right? That's how we, that's how we uh, catch the culprit, so to say, right? We, 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 we slowly find little bits of clues until we combine them and try and find if they are related, if they're not related. And um, you'll often find that whenever companies suffer major layoffs, it's not very unlikely that they suffer more layoffs and then end up, uh, you know, being defunct. That happens quite frequently. And in the case of Daybreak, a company that's in uh, sorry, owned by an investment company, 
that means when it no longer has an ROI, they're going to sell it. <laughs> they're going to sell it or sell the assets. They're not going to take the loss. Like investors are not going to put all their money into a product just to take a loss. That's not how it works, right? They can't get more money if they put money into things and don't make money. Am I making sense? <laughs> I'm definitely ranty today, if you guys can't tell. But it's been like a, a two weeks since I've talked to you guys. So I'll go ahead and move into my soapbox segment since I'm already on my soapbox up here. Yeesh. The view is pleasant. Okay, so I have a fun little article we can read today. And this one was a, essentially a general media, right? Let's take on MMOs. Okay, so the first thing you can already see down here is them hyping up uh, Lineage 2 Revolution. Okay. Hmm. Anyway, uh, Mike Fisher states that Bethesda and Blizzard should learn from how Square Enix fixed its Final Fantasy 14 problem. I, look, I, I always hate these kind of articles because it's like you can compare companies together but it ends up looking foolish once you start to outline uh, specific aspects, right? And what I mean by that is that Bethesda and Blizzard are both companies, right? Square Enix is a company. Cool. Got that in common, guys. Okay, what else do they have in common? Square Enix makes, uh, it, or sorry, Square Enix is a Japanese company. Oh, shit, it's already very different from Bethesda and Blizzard, right? That's, that's all you have to say. Point being is that when it comes from a different part of the, the world, it has a different uh, culture, a.k.a. they handle business differently. And in Japan, failure is seen as a very, very, very horrible thing. It's a, it's a terrible fate, right? Sorry for my Japanese fans if I'm misrepresenting this. Please feel free to clue me in and, and correct me, but this is how it's been explained to me. Failure is like a really big, con uh, really horrible concept, right? In, in Japanese culture, it, it stems all the way back to the samurais, where you know, whenever they they face shame in battle, they would you know, you know, commit uh, seppuku and kill themselves and whatever else because it was better to die uh, from a blade than to die from shame. Point being is that it's ingrained in their culture that you don't give up on things, that you keep trying and trying and trying. You can't, you can't surrender, right? You also look at like. Culture-wise, the, the wars that they've been in, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. they've always been very resilient and and very technologically savvy. And so, with Square Enix, right? Whenever Final Fantasy was a problem, the case of Final Fantasy, it's it's a very, 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 very different issue than Fallout seventy six is. And this is why I hate when people make like blanket comparisons because the the two different areas are completely, completely different, right? Not we've already established that the markets are different. But there's more things. Say, say, for example, Bethesda launched a game that they knew was unfinished. They already knew 76 was unfinished, right? Square Enix, when, when they launched um, uh, their, sorry, their first uh, 1.0 version of Final Fantasy XIV, they also knew it was unfinished, right? So they have that in common. The difference is, is that Final Fantasy XIV was 
was putting in immense amount of content and updating like nearly daily and nearly weekly at the time, right? And they were also already very open with their audience before that point from their Final Fantasy XI days. Point being is that Square Enix had always been seen by the MMO community as very receptive to people, and they've always done a particularly good job of including people in their dev talks, for example, which Final Fantasy still has to this day, uh, like their weekly dev talks where you can ask them questions and stuff like that. Point being is that in certain regards, sure, they're similar, right? But when you look at Square Enix, Square Enix, I don't think they launched Final Fantasy uh, 1.0 unfinished in the sense that it was it didn't have content. There was certainly content in the game. I think it's more so that they didn't maybe test it out as much as they possibly could, which they admitted themselves, by the way. But what they proceeded to do after that is bring the game down for like a year and some change and essentially create a brand new game, right? Do you guys think that Bethesda under any circumstance would ever do such a thing? No. I, I would say no because culturally they have no reason to, right? In America, why would you you don't have a cult you don't have the same cultural reason that Square Enix I mean Square Enix had their lead developer literally on stage crying because he was ashamed of his game. When's the last time you saw t- <laughs> Mr. Todd Howard up there uh crying because he didn't like Skyrim? No, he's trying to sell you Skyrim, okay? What I'm saying is that the cultures are so different. So this is like one of those scenarios where you're like a young kid and you're like, what if Batman could fight Wolverine? And you just like, you combine completely like random universes because you just want like crazy crossovers, right? And, and But you, there's no logic to it because somebody could walk up to you and be like, um, but those are from different universes, so they could never actually fight each other unless they did a crossover episode, right? Somebody has to explain the context to you. This is kind of one of those things where it's just like, maybe Bethesda and Blizzard should learn from Square Enix. It's like, in actuality, there's so many reasons why they wouldn't do it in the same way, right? And culture is a big reason. And that's another point somebody pointed out in chat. There's no way that Square Enix could ever abandon a Final Fantasy project. They could not do that. They couldn't do that. And Bethesda never really had to care about that because they made their game moddable. So essentially, people could make their game better for them, right? What I'm trying to say is that Square Enix, even when it doesn't necessarily have the biggest monetary reason, will stick by their products. Final Fantasy XI, I'm sure, is profitable, but not largely profitable. There's no thing really to kind of back that up, right? That is largely profitable. But they have still supported it. And that game is like, what, 16, 17 years old? And they will continue to support it as long as people are willing willing to play it, right? I'm just saying that that the cultural reasons that people often overlook here makes this whole premise already seem silly. But even when you compare the games, right? Square Enix released a game that was essentially more close aligned to what Eleven was. But it wasn't that it was bad necessarily. It's that it was that it just didn't necessarily have the best new player experience, and it had a lot of performance issues, primarily performance issues. Um, with with Bethesda, the game itself is not good. It's not just the performance issues. It's 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 core aspects of the game. So if anything, although the developers behind Final Fantasy said that with A Realm Reborn they did remake the game, they still certainly had to use some of that code, right? Because we can still see similarities in certain ways. In, in the case of Fallout 76, I find it very, very unlikely that they're going to drastically improve the game. 
um, to the point to where it's going to become as good as Final Fantasy XIV is right now. And I think that that's simply because, A, they don't have the tech. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have released such a shitty game in the first place. Or they've just lost the pulse of the market, which is another possibility. But uh, I just there's no way that Bethesda is going to take the Square Enix approach. Square Enix walked up to everybody, to the audience, and was like, hey, everybody, and like gave them the whip and was like, you know, that was Square Enix whenever Final Fantasy uh, 1.0 didn't work. And so when A Realm Reborn came out, everybody was trying it. Previous fans were still trying the game because they were like, well, I mean, you were completely honest with us. You apologized. You said you understand the issues. You've been totally open to dialogue with us. We totally believe you and we're going to play this game. In the case of Bethesda, when have they ever done that? I'm sorry, when have they ever done that? When did they say, sorry about all the bugs in Skyrim, boys? Like, no. In fact, isn't there a meme that Todd at one point said that something was a feature when it actually was a bug? And so people used to always make that joke that bugs are now features. Um, Not to mention, of course, you know, tell me lies, tell me sweet little. He's made a lot of um, claims that he didn't necessarily... That he that the game wasn't necessarily able to support. <laughs> so so uh, Retanaru brought up a good point. Imagine Todd Howard in front of a mic apologizing for his for his cut everything you can strategy. I mean, it's true. It's like imagine him being up there, looking dead into the camera and being like, "We're sorry about Fallout seventy six. We know we made an inferior product, not one up to the standards." Of the Fallout franchise. Skyrim. It's dead. He, he, he would never get up there and apologize. Like, I mean, first off, American corporations in general don't do that. They'll just put it on Twitter, right? Or their publicist will. Just works. Oh, sorry. Someone was mentioning Blizzard and Activision. Activision, uh, it's a, as far as I know, wasn't it a joint partnership? Does Activision own like a larger stake or something? Hey, uh, thanks for the sub. Um, Gunbow9, welcome to the Noir Club. That brings us up to, I think, I think we're back to 31. No, we're 30. Damn. Badman. Okay. Anyway, I I just was like going through this and I hate whenever I see people do these kinds of articles where it's just so like, boom, bye, and there's nothing of actual substance in it. Like you don't have a PR problem. You have a trust problem. Admit fault, apologize and explain. Fast is good, but thorough is better. Recognize and listen to your loyal fans. Like this, this seems like shit that you read out of a fucking soap, like a... Not a soapbox, a uh, cereal box. You know, like when you read the like the fortune cookies. Admit fault, apologize, and explain. Fast is good, but thorough is better. Point being is this article is literally just created to cash in on. I mean, to be fair, it's a guest. So what can you expect? But this is something that I saw on the first page of Reddit. <laughs> I know, I know Reddit has its problems, but 
you go through this and you're just like, okay, what did this person teach me? Like, what what did they teach me? Oh yeah, don't scroll to the bottom because it'll scroll to another article. Oh yeah, by the way, a little teaser. This is where we're at right now. My editor is gonna hate me. <laughs> to be fair, um, a good thousand or so of that is at the moment. I'd say about fifteen hundred of it is um probably my own notes and stuff like that. Anyway, the last little bit that I wanted to uh, talk about on the soapbox was the concept of people talking about playing MMOs like a single-player game. Okay. Is it wrong to play an MMORPG like a single-player game? I've been playing MMOs for a decade now, and I remember myself being quite the social creature in those early days. However, as time went on, I became more and more of a loner. Games like Elder Scrolls Online and Star Wars The Old Republic only contributed to that since they're so... Story-heavy MMOs that actually adapt to the number of players at hand. But I've noticed that there's a quite a few people in the MMO community, including this thread, that find it, the idea abysmal. And would like to hear you guys' thoughts about it, even if it comes from both sides of the coin. I personally prefer to do a... I personally prefer to... What? I personally prefer to do be a loner. Okay? Not just because of the reasons I mentioned above, but because also the possible drama and otherwise unwanted negative attention. Okay. I got to go big screen on this because I got a face palm. Because no one has ever said you can't have preferences, man. Like, of course you can play a game however you want to play it. But here's why we can't play games like MMOs as single-player games. Because in order to do so, they have to be designed like a single-player game. And if they're designed like a single-player game, that means that they are not an MMO. And so the reason why we can't play MMOs like single-player games, generally speaking, is because they aren't single-player games. <laughs> They're not single-player games. In the case of the games that have been single-player games, they've been single-player games because their populations died off or it became essentially the biggest form of their content. In the case of Star Wars The Old Republic, they didn't have the population to support big PvP or whatever else, not to mention they didn't have the engine, and certainly didn't have the, the, the features to do, you know, big, you know, PvP changes for the longest time. Look at how long it took them to get to the changes that they're at now. The point being is that it became a single-player MMO because they kind of designed it like a single-player MMO. <laughs> the game is not designed to be multiplayer, and that's why it ended up not feeling like an MMO. I tell people this all the time. SWOTOR for me is a good game. It's a good game. It is. It's not a good MMO. It's actually a horrible MMO because it doesn't do a whole lot of MMO things very well. In fact, it does very little MMO things. And the things that it does do are objectively inferior to other people. For example, their PvP systems. They're not better than WoW's. WoW has way more features, way more aspects within each uh, Warzone. Even Warhammer had better uh, Warzones. Now, I will say Hutball is pretty cool. Raid content. Well, they, they can't beat anybody there because they don't have the budget to beat anybody. Um, what else? Crafting? Are you kidding me? The point being is that they designed their game to be a single-player game and then wondered why it was a poor MMO. Well, because they designed it like a single-player game. <laughs> so the reason why we can't... The reason why it's wrong, quote-unquote, is because if developers design it this way, the game will play like a single-player game, which means it'll be a bad MMO, which means it's a bad game. Because if you're an MMORPG and you're a bad MMORPG, you're a bad game in that sense, right? Now, SWOTOR, great single-player game. Great single-player game. 
But that to me is a greater insult than saying it's bad. Because <laughs> it means that a game that essentially was built to be massively multiplayer online is better at being a single player game. Anyway, I'm not picking on this guy in particular. I just don't like when people don't think outside of the box and don't take time to kind of reflect on themselves. And I can see he has the Old Republic in his tag here, so he probably is just fine playing single-player MMOs. Um, but once again, the reason why we can't play single-player uh, MMOs, or sorry, we can't play MMOs like single-player games is because if, they, if you can, it's a, it's, it was designed as a single-player game. There's very, 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 very few exceptions, right? Think about it. Nearly every major MMO, you need to play with other players, especially in sandbox games. And sandbox games, players are the lifeblood of the game. The onus is on the players, not the developers, to make content. So what that means is that you have to play with other players. What many people are missing about MMOs is the, you know, deterioration of the adventure party, of the group aspects we talked about in the very beginning with tabletop, right? People miss those aspects. It doesn't mean that if you're a loner, you're bad. I personally, I'm a loner. I don't like to go outside that much. I stay inside. I like being inside. I don't have that many friends. The friends that I do have are very close. I'm totally fine with being a loner. That being said, I know that whenever I play a game that's titled in a genre MMORPG, I know that the first part stands for Massively Multiplayer Online. And now, one thing I'll make abundantly clear there are sandbox games where you can play solo. It's just much harder. And I know people who play solo in these games. It's just much harder. So yeah, you can play solo in some of these games. You're just going to struggle, and rightfully so, because uh, antisocial behaviors ultimately have never been favored in society, right? Ultimately, we, we prosper whenever we help each other, right? Or, or work together, even if it's over a common enemy, right? It's... Point being is like, yes, there are MMOs and yes, there should be experiences which you could do solo. For example, I don't like the idea that you can't level up by yourself. Like a lot of old MMOs have that kind of concept where you essentially can't level up solo. I don't know if I agree with that per se. I, I think there should be variety. It should be harder, but it certainly should still be an aspect of the game that you can do. But if you ever wonder why people like me have such hostile reactions to whenever people talk about playing MMOs like single player games, it's because... That's not what an MMO is. And that's not why we play MMOs. So, please, you know, stay in the single-player MMOs. Elder Scrolls Online and Star Wars Elder Republic. I like my multiplayer MMO. Or the massive multiplayer MMOs. <laughs> or, or RPGs, sorry. Because that's a bit redundant. Fishing, the ultimate solo experience. Single-player MMO is just a single-player game being held back by MMO copy-paste quests and combat mechanics. Exactly. Like, I, I completely agree with you. That, that's exactly what I feel in SWOTOR. If people ask, why can't I play... Why can't, what, what's wrong with playing SWOTOR like a, like a single-player game? Because it's a worse single-player game than KOTOR 1 and KOTOR 2. Change my mind. Change my mind. Make a compelling argument. That Swotor has a better single player than Kotor 1 or Kotor 2, all you a liar. Because I know even you don't believe that. <laughs> Massive single player online. The thing that sucks about cutscene heavy MMORPGs is that it makes it difficult to be on voice chat with your guild. It also just makes it difficult to interact with your, with your party in general. Which is, here's the crazy thing, guys. There can be story-based games that are cooperative. I know MMOs haven't figured that out yet, but we can make an MMO that 
that has role play and, and dialogue trees and Swotor has done it on a small extent, right? Um, with their flashpoints and operations and such. My my point is is that other games can adopt similar systems where we can actually be in a party and quest together. Um, Storm of Zephyr or Zeher is a Zephyr, the expansion for Neverwinter Nights two. Obviously, Mask of the Betrayer is the best story one, but the Storm of Ze- is it Zephyr? I think it's Zephyr. That one in particular had a group party system, same one that um, Pathfinder has. As well as, oh no, similar to Pathfinder's, more like um, Divinity Original Sin. Essentially what it means is that your party can talk like together, right? You can each say different things, you get roles and whatever else. So it makes it feel like you're an adventure party who's also trying to like participate in quests uh, together. I'm, I'm surprised more MMOs don't do stuff like that, funny enough. I, I'm surprised by that. Mass Effect and Mumo make it happen, Bioware. At this point, I don't even know if I'd trust them to do it. I'd love it. Swotor has far more options and replayability than Tor 1 and 2. How? How? Okay, Printa, can you, can you explain that argument? Or do you want to come on voice by chance? Because how does it have more replayability? Are you saying because there's more classes? Because yeah, it had more content, right? But I'm 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 un- <laughs> I'm unsure how it has more replayability. Because I've personally beaten Kotor two like fifteen times. It's my favorite game of all time. <laughs> so maybe in that regard, um, the argument uh, is a little bit biased for me. But that being said, I mean, you just look at the developers that were involved in both games. Uh, and then you look at the ones that were involved in um, in Swotor, and although there's some overlap, what you'll notice is that they did far more refined work when they did an RPG because, of course, they had the ability to do that, right? Not to mention, Drew, Drew Carpetian ended up writing Revan during the Swotor thing and that whole debacle. Which, sorry, it's kind of like retconning the lore. It it's totally destroys the lore to me. How seriously, each class has its own unique story and abilities. I would wager if you uh, got a subscription and you played just the story in SWOTOR, I would wager you'd probably beat it in about maybe 12 to 15 hours, right? One storyline. You compare that one storyline to KOTOR 2, because KOTOR 2 is one storyline as well, and there's way more hours in KOTOR 2. Most people's playthroughs in KOTOR 2 are from 20 to 30 hours, and that's a fast playthrough. Like, I, I've, I've beaten it on 18, and I'm, you know, I've beaten the game ad, ad nauseum, like, so many times. The, the thing is, is, like, if you compare all of the class storylines... To, to the whole to the whole game well I, yeah I mean I guess in that respect there's more content but my argument is that the, not that there's more content my argument is that it's better or is it better of an RPG I don't think you can make that argument I, I really like I don't see I mean if you're gonna say uh, Imperial Agent Imperial Agent has about a third of the complexity of KOTOR 2's plot so in complexity it loses 
Uh, you look at like Bounty Hunter. People really like that action-oriented storyline. Why not just play a Dark Side Jedi in Kotor? Much better, right? Or be you know, hang around with Mandalore. You have Mandalore in your party. Who cares about the bounty hunters? You got a commando in your party, right? An actual commando, not one that's like a soldier loyalist. Uh, not to mention, there's a lot more ambiguity in in in, uh, in uh, Kotor, for example. Let's take um, the different companions. You can turn all of your Jedi companions, or sorry, all of your companions in the second game, besides a couple, the droids, um, one particular character that I won't spoil. But you can, you can turn the majority of them to Jedi, right? And so you can literally change the way that the game is played, or you can not change that. In, in SWOTOR, often the most thing that you can do to your companion is either like, be mean to them and, and like make them like Jaysa. You can maybe make her become dark side. Um, but other than that, you don't really change who your companions are. They're basically who they are. They're, you don't have any direct influence on them. Uh, for example, I'm not going to use any spoilers here, but Malavi Quinn in the Sith Warriors storyline, even if you know that he's suspicious, there's nothing you can do about it because the game is set up in you know this poor way where it essentially makes you go from quests hub to quest hub until eventually you're like, oh my god, I'm so surprised that this thing happened in the story. In, your Imperial agent cannot flip sides in an MMO. In a single-player game, you could give that option. Well, e even more so than that, like let's say, for example, let's compare the Imperial agent to KOTOR 2's uh, main storyline. So the main storyline in KOTOR 2, uh, spoilers for those who've never played KOTOR 2, the main storyline is essentially that Kreia, somebody um, who previously was a historian, a Jedi historian, discovered a temple and essentially used forbidden knowledge, aka dark side uh, knowledge and energy, fell to the dark side, and then created an academy. In uh, this academy, or ran the academy rather, she attracted two very powerful Sith, um, who weren't you know totally powerful yet, but she kind of molded them to be powerful. Darth Nihilus, um, also Darth Sion, right, the guy who, who never dies essentially, and the guy who feasts on everything. And so then she uh, teaches them; they betray her. Uh, Nihilus strips her of all of her force so then she, start, she starts to like hate the force because she realized how reliant she was on it because she's not physically powerful she's not like a great swordsman she was 100% just like some like mastermind like she has the brain right the force powers so when she loses that ability to use the force powers she basically uh, gets really you know angry and, and hates the force and so she wants to destroy it so she tracks down the exile she finds the exile the exile is a wound in the force and what a wound in the Force means is that essentially, um, in Kreia's eyes, she could use that wound to then deafen all of the Force, which would essentially end the Force. But what Kreia doesn't necessarily know is that it would, it would kind of end all life, right? Because, well, actually, I take that back. Um, the Exile proved to people that you could live without the Force. So technically, um, Kreia was basing her hypothesis on that, that if the Exile was able to live without the Force and willingly chose to get away from the Force, then we could bring everybody away from the force. So there's not this like undermining, you know, power or underlying power that's kind of controlling it all. Because that's what, essentially what the force is. It's an energy force that controls everything within the Star Wars universe, right? And, and so then you track down Exile. She, she teaches Exile up while basically also returning to her former power, betrays the Exile. And then the Exile realizes everything kind of gets taught a, a very valuable lesson along the way, which is essentially that evil is not necessarily evil. It depends on the eye of the beholder, but also in particular that uh, morality is on a is on a scale. It's not absolute, right? Okay, 
So I just that, that was like a couple minutes of me explaining the story. Now, please tell me what storyline in Swotori has anything even close to that level of complexity. There's just no possible way, dude. When the majority of the quests that you're doing are, are fetch quests, especially early on, but they're just prettied up with nice language, there's no possible way you can compare to that RPG-like experience in SWOTOR. I'm sorry. I think SWOTOR, if you take its two to three best classes, it's a B-level RPG at best. At best. That's because it simply has less. <laughs> Ludens, you, you almost got me with that one. That was a good one. It has uh, less content per storyline. Sorry if I did if I didn't make that point before. Let me, let me make that point because it's not fair to be like, hey, let me let me compare ten storylines to your one storyline. This one has more content. Well, of course it does. <laughs> but imagine if there's more Kotor games. Now we're talking more of like a fair apt comparison, right? But the the Revan story in Swotor is another thing that's just like. They essentially took out any sense of um, complexity in the game. The reason why SWOTOR would never scratch the surface of what KOTOR 1 and, and KOTOR 2 were able to do from an RPG perspective is that RPG exp uh, uh, experiences are far better at roping you into the immersion, right? They're better at making you feel immersed because they can make you feel things through sound, through, through voice, and it's unique. You know it's only happening to you at the time that you're playing the game. You don't walk around and see 16 other dudes, XX Legolas 112, like you don't see him sitting outside the door ready to go into the quest giver as well like you see in Swotor, right so you have that aspect because that ruins immersion it ruins my immersion being you know a person who's played Swotor you know, way too much unfortunately um i i never felt immersed unless i just treated it like a single player game so unless i just pretended that nobody else existed i never had fun playing that game like no serious fun, I should say. Like no long-term fun. There was no longevity in it. But I, but I greatly enjoyed playing it single-player style. That being said, if I compare those experiences, which I've nearly beat every storyline, by the way, the only one that I haven't beat um, all the way through is the uh, Jedi Counselor and the Trooper, both of which I think, frankly speaking, in my opinion, are very poor storylines and certainly not very enjoyable for me. Um, but I've beaten every other storyline. And I would safely say... Um, that I could debate to the end of time that KOTOR 1 and KOTOR 2 are better storylines than any of those individually. Playing through the game as a bounty hunter, all I can remember about it was me running around fetching things, killing people because reasons. Yeah, essentially the story as a bounty hunter is like you're caught up in this big like, I'm not going to spoil it too much, but you're essentially caught up in this big like bounty hunting ring and you're kind of like forced to do these tasks in order to like satisfy people. And then at the end, you can finally have some level of agency on your own. But essentially, most of the bounty hunter playthrough is not really a bounty hunter. You're kind of more like a, an errand boy. You're more like a hired gun than you are like a bounty hunter. And I know some people would say that they're the same, but a mercenary isn't the same as a bounty hunter. A bounty hunter is going to go hunt somebody down because they want to get paid. A hired gun is paid by somebody, possibly to go kill somebody else. It's a little bit different. But it's not fair comparing one game to one part of a game. I'm, I'm not sure how it isn't, though. Because you're you're chairing, or sorry, you're you're trying to say that oh, you, you should compare ten storylines to one storyline. I don't see how that's the least bit comparable. Because no individual storyline in Swotor, because again, I'm not saying content. I'm not saying it has more content. I, I didn't. If I said that, that's not the statement that I mean. I mean that it has 
less quality <laughs> is my argument. My argument's about quality. Well, yeah, HK-47 is another great experience, and, and essentially he was brought to... Uh, best part of KOTOR 1 was multiplayer? Sorry, what do you mean multiplayer? Wait, what do you mean KOTOR 1 was multiplayer? Sorry, you mean KOTOR? Because there's no multiplayer in KOTOR. <laughs> if there was, I mean, we'd be having a different discussion. I wouldn't say that either, Morto. I, I, KOTOR 1's story is not my particularly you know, favorite. It's not my favorite. It's certainly better because it's more refined overall and it has great characters like Jolie Bin. Put, put it this way. I think where SWOTOR unfortunately suffers from the most is poor companion characters. It's very hit or miss. You've got basically like four consensus best um, companion characters amongst like how many companions? 20 or something? That's way too many to have that many that suck. Um, whereas in KOTOR, you've got Jolie Bindo, right? There's a great character that everybody loves. You have uh, a Wookiee. You have Zalbar with you. You're into um, that kind of thing. You have uh, well, Anderus Ordo, a.k.a. Mandalore, who's you know badass in itself. And it's also awesome to have a guy like that on your team. Of course, you have HK-47 which needs no introduction. He's one of the best characters, you know, like basic, basically ever. And uh, KOTOR 2, the ones that come to mind, of course, Kreia, Atten, uh, HK-47 again, right? Other great characters. Point being is like these games have, if you compare KOTOR 1 and KOTOR 2 just in terms of its companion characters, they're way better than all of the companion characters in SWOTOR, for sure. For sure. Just think about it. They have way more story because they're they're actually integral to the story. It's not a matter of just like you're my companion and I do things for you and we are friendly and sometimes maybe we have relationships. Like no, in Kotor one, characters are integral parts of the story. Or Kotor two, for example, Adden is your pilot. Like without him, you wouldn't have got anywhere. So it's not like he's just you know Alavi Quinn or whatever who's like the medic guy or whatever. He actually is the one flying your ship in the story. So you can't be like, screw you, Adam, because you need a pilot, right? And he's a damn good one. But yeah, point being, it's hard for an MMO to compete against an actual RPG because, well, they have a lot more, uh, you know, I guess broad concerns. They're not focused on micro things. They're focused on macro things. And the unfortunate truth about SWOTOR is the vast majority of lines in that game were skipped. And that was proven. Devs used to say that all the time. They said it was absurd how many times people would skip through dialogue, right? Like just how many people would skip through story. And I used to see it all the time because I, w I was a power gamer back then. And I was one of the first people to hit max level on my server. And how do you think I did it? By spamming spacebar. And I saw everybody else do it too. <laughs> like people were doing it alongside with me. So, like, when we tried to play it like an MMO, it didn't work for us. It, it needed a different kind of uh, setting, I think. I think that game would have been much better if it was just built as, like, a multiplayer game and not an MMO. Like, I genuinely think if you sold SWOTOR as a multiplayer story game, it could have had much better ceiling and a much better reception. But the problem is we all went in thinking Star Wars The Old Republic MMO and didn't really get that. I think that's why a lot of us are... Um, 
think that's why a lot of us kind of have our opinions on it, I guess, I would say. MMO has a lot more things that they have to use their resources on versus single-player RPG. My brother and I bought... Well, I, I skipped it the first time I played it, Perrin Hitchin. Just so you know, I've played the game far more than you'll ever have played the game. Like, I, I know it's like easy to kind of be dismissive whenever people don't still play the game. But if you think about it, I was in alpha, I was in closed beta, I was in beta, and I played at launch. So I had been playing the game for a year before it ever launched. <laughs> and then I still played after that. And I've nearly beat every storyline. And, and you see what I'm saying? Like, I've played the game a lot, man. Like, I skipped that first because I was playing with a progression mindset. But I've played just about every story. Um, yeah, uh, Ludens will have to grant you access. It's hard to read sarcasm, by the way, through text. That's why I typically try and invite people on. <laughs> How's uh, LOA? I like LOA. I was talking about it earlier. Uh, LOA is kind of very simplistic from a gameplay perspective in the sense that, uh, you know, combat. I certainly think it's melee combat and ranged combat could use a lot of help, but it's magic gameplay is at least good enough. And it, it works, certainly. It has a lot of core systems that Ultima also had that work well enough. But where my mind is, is at the moment with Legends of Aria is not necessarily Legends of Aria. It's what can we do with Legends of Aria? as a platform because we uh you know me a friend of mine actually a couple of, excuse me a couple of friends of mine we've been meaning to for a long time work on developing an mmo and obviously we tried that with rustfall uh which was based on the rust server or sorry rust game it was a custom rust server but it just uh, it was always limited and um we, we didn't actually have tool sets apparently now legends of aria has an actual moddable tool set through uh, Lua scripts as well as um, their uh, Unity engine, because it uses the Unity engine, so you can actually create custom assets already. And what this means is that, like, a lot of the issues that I see in LOA, which, by the way, aren't necessarily issues as much as they're more so like it needs more polish, because there's nothing in the game right now that's just like straight up terrible, I would say, but there are things that could just use a little bit of quality of life as well as like things that you can necessarily change about the game. For example, um, uh, you know, my friend and I don't like that the game only has two abilities for a weapon. I think that's pretty absurd for an MMO. Like I get it, it's trying to be classic Ultima, but we'd like something closer to like EverQuest. Um, we want the exact same PvP feel of an Ultima game, but we just want it in an actual immersive kind of world and universe. But anyway, I, I digress. But point being, the thing that's most interesting to me about LOA is the platform and its ability to grow as a game. It's it's not that I would say that the game right now is in a feature complete state or is in a is in a state that I would advertise it to people mass. I don't think I necessarily would yet, unless I introduce some caveats into it. Say for example, um, you have to be patient for their next content update, which is coming in the spring. Um, you should probably just wait for their Steam launch, which is in January in the first place. Um, sorry, their their early access Steam launch, or just wait for their launch in general. Generally, with these things, I say just wait for launch. But um, anyway, that's just my opinion. Oh, taming is broken. That, that's a good point. Ta well, I wouldn't say taming is broken, sorry. I would say taming is, is greatly unfinished. Essentially, after I think level like 75 or level 80, there's no, there's, no, um, there's no content for tamers. 
any MMOs that you would vouch for. As much as people want me to vouch for MMOs, I nearly never will vouch for an MMO just simply because I don't like to uh, um, assign my name to something that I don't really, you know, outright support because I don't want people to get the right. Because essentially it ruins people's view. I see it all the time with Lazy Peon. When he got so heavily into Black Desert Online, people reamed him for that. And I, and I understand. That game has some questionable shit, but... No. Hey, thanks. Thanks for the sub, uh, Asian boy Jesse. Welcome to the Nork Lab. I appreciate it. I'm pretending to know how to fight with my hands. Hello, adventure. Welcome to the town of uh, Honey Honeywood. Welcome to Honeywood. Hello, adventurer, and welcome to the town of Honeywood. We are. Uh, <clears throat> Hello, adventure. Skip. There's a drag. Skip. The castle. A skip. Monster. Skip. Sword of Skip. Here's the sword of Skip. Thank you, hero. We truly believe that was. Uh... Yeah, <laughs> Alright, that was pretty good. That's basically how it goes, unfortunately. <laughs> True MMO experience. Alright. I get your joke now, man. Sorry, I didn't pick up on the sarcasm. Alright, I'm going to go ahead and move to the last segment, which is going to be my call-in segment. So, I'll use this time if nobody wants to call in or ask me any questions to just, you know, talk about some stuff. Uh, some more stuff. We can extend the soapbox segment, but um, also just open up the floor to you guys. Ask me questions, at me, etc. Leaked Discord. Yeah. Violence against women in a video game report. Ready? But, I mean, yeah. So there, there's... Oh, a Rift video is going to be this weekend. Um, I'm nearly done with the script now. So that one, it's going to be longer for sure. This Rift video, I've, I've tried to take more of my time and really trying to get the writing down. Um, also, the, the voiceover, which I'll be doing tomorrow. I'm going to make sure my voice is ready for that, which probably means I'll be stopping the podcast pretty soon so I don't blow my voice out. But um, that, that should be good. There's a lot of interesting stuff. And I think that we've pretty much tied Rift up in a, in a, in a, in a, um, in a bow. Like, I, I feel pretty confident about my analysis. Obviously, um, I already have the knowledge now that the game's in maintenance mode, so it makes it a little bit easier to make claims whenever you can be like, well, in maintenance mode, dude, which essentially for an MMO means it's going to die because it's like you, you rarely, if ever, see a game go into maintenance mode and then actually get more content. Um, the only exceptions I can think of are like classic games like Ultima and Dark Age of Camelot. They've gone through like peaks and valleys uh, later on. Mind you, I'm talking like thousands of players, not hundreds or tens. But I'm talking thousands, so there's still like a base there, but not a whole lot. Uh, Tryon is an absolutely uh, terrible company, and um, frankly speaking, you'll you'll get that even more after um, watching this video. <laughs> I'll do a video on them, but the reason why I don't just do a video on Tryon is because my videos for individual games do better, and I would rather do individual games and then do a company. Because although it's similar, obviously, because it's like going to be about the games, it'll be more snapshot views of those games, which we'll talk about points from my videos. 
and I can actually just focus on analyzing the company itself, which I, I do believe deserves its own video. So kind of my experience or my um, thoughts on that. Did you see the streamer that hit his girlfriend on stream? Got a video if you want. Uh, no, I didn't. And I good man. <laughs> I don't feel like watching some stupid shit. Rift still exists. It does, but essentially they're in they're in maintenance mode, aka QOL mode, which is quality of life. Um, they recently said that, by the way. It's not me pulling it out of my ass. That was recently said on their forums. They asked people for quality of life changes, but said that they didn't have the capacity or dev size in order to go for more ambitious content at the time, which essentially means it's going to fail. Like, it's going to die. What upcoming MMO are you most excited for? Aria? No. Oh, no. no. Uh, please make no mistake. Just because I talk fondly of Aria doesn't mean that it's necessarily my de facto in-game. I prefer way more interactive gameplay experiences. For example, uh, Darkfall is still my favorite combat system ever. And until it gets outdone with another physics system, it will continue to be my favorite. Um, in terms of like class systems, Rift had a really good one. I loved uh, Warhammer's classes, even though balancing was certainly an issue. And I liked the way classes worked in uh, Shadowbane as well. Probably my favorite, though, would be... Hmm. Guild Wars 1 and... Rift are probably some of the best class systems, I would think. Mind you. Uh, Rift has a lot of issues with this class system, but um, pretty good. Thoughts on CSGO going free-to-play and adding a type of Battle Royale? Why do you want Battle Royale in a CSGO game? Average kill time in a CSGO game is like, what, like a second? <laughs> two seconds? Oh, two seconds is way too much. That's, that's one Mississippi, two Mississippi. That's too slow. It's basically like a second. So what's the point in Battle Royale when you just die so quickly? Battle Royale to me is, is fun because there's a chance for comeback opportunities. So you can heal, you can shield, you can whatever you can do to get back into the fight. But in CSGO, the idea of just immediately being shot and killed seems kind of silly. Any thoughts on Atlas? Uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but basically I don't think it's going to be able to deliver on the promises it wants to deliver on. Um, and I'm not really convinced the gameplay is going to be any good. It looks very floaty, very, like, disconnected. And frankly speaking, looks very similar to Ark in regards to that way. Because it has a very kind of, uh, engine. In fact, what engine is that? Is that? Huh. Apparently, they're using Unreal 4 now. But... Am I thinking of a different company? Sorry, I'm thinking of um I was I was getting Arc Survival confused with uh, another company. Where's Wildcard at? That other game they did. Survival of the Fittest was the um was their ro uh, battle royale version. I remember that now. And then yeah, Atlas is their third one. Okay. Sorry, I got them confused with, um, they do have gameplay issues, by the way, make, make no mistake, but I actually got them confused with, um, snail games, the ones that are behind, uh, that dark and light and, um, what's that other one that they had? I think that's the main one, dark and light. <laughs> hey, what's up, Trick Tracks? Welcome. 
no one asked for battle royale and they added it meanwhile people asked for a 5v5 with no rank but competitive style rules and they did, they still didn't add it i don't know what what it is about that i was just talking about the same thing with smash like how hard is it to add a competitive mode or a non-competitive mode with competitive rules that seems like the best way to practice or competitive right ruins the in competitive integrity of the base game when you all of a sudden have an influx of accounts being created over and over again without vac bans mattering anymore i've been contemplating getting atlas but i remember it took two years arc to be even playable yeah and even even playable i'd say is debatable too because it has so many issues dude i've never had more like stupid ai issues than i've had in that game where just like all of a sudden my t-rex is like trying to break out of my base and just like destroys my base and shit just like dumb shit has happened already Unranked slash rank should be a simple standard in most games. You would think so at this point, especially considering that, in my opinion, the de facto best um, uh, ranking system in any game was Halo 2. I'd put a close second StarCraft 1. And those, by the way, those games came out over 10 years ago. Over 15 years ago, in fact. Well, just about. To prevent cheaters in comp, they added Prime status to the people who brought the game. Or you think you mean bot? New accounts can't get into Prime games, so it only affects new players who go up against cheaters. Ah, so now, now you have to have the Prime status. I see. And if you want to get Prime, you either have to buy it for $15 or get to level 21. And that takes months. It doesn't take months, dude. See... MGPT, I think you're just repeating what other people are saying here because I just recently leveled up a character a few months ago. It doesn't take months to get to level 21, dude. <laughs> like it'll take it'll take it'll take you a couple days for sure. It's not months, dude. I recently grinded two characters up myself. It didn't take me two months. Within two months, I had probably like a hundred rank games or something like that on those accounts. Any cautious optimism for Camelot Unchained? Yeah, a lot of cautious optimism. Camelot, I think, has the best base in order to do effectively because they have a realm system, which is the easiest to balance for. Um, they have a lot of different variety in classes and, and races, so that allows for a lot of variety in the game. That's one thing Dark Age of Camelot did particularly well. It has a far more robust building system than just about any other MMO that I've currently seen, which greatly helps it because it's something that was lacking in Dark Age of Camelot. You had these massive RVR lakes, but there was essentially nothing that you can put in the lakes. They were just like, you go to the keep, go to this place. And that was kind of it, right? Well, here you essentially have a playground where all of these players and amazing, you know, builders can create massive structures, which you now can assault. So like that aspect in itself, if they can just get the performance right and the game can feel smooth enough, you know, which I think it's been making a lot of progress. We've seen it with like a thousand or so bots on screen and they were able to have like 300 or sorry, 30 FPS, 40 FPS. I also saw one time... They had like four or 500 players on the screen, also 30 FPS. So they're doing the smart thing and focusing first and foremost on their server tech and their ability to run uh, the game and run with that many players on the screen. Um, they're also doing a, a hybrid combat system, which is tab target base, but also has projectiles. Um, this means that you can shoot a projectile. If somebody summons a wall, they can actually block the projectile because it's an actual projectile in the game. That's a really cool thing that I love or would love to see more a tab target MMOs do because it's at least some sort of innovation and step in the right direction in my opinion. But um, yeah, I, I actually, I have decently high hopes for it. 
but I will certainly say that I'm not um, holding. I'm not going to hold my tongue. Um, or rather, I'm not. I'm not going to. What's that saying? Um, I certainly won't. I won't hold my breath. I guess I would say. But it would be nice, and I am in beta, closed beta, by the way. But it's NDA right now, so there's not really a whole lot that we can even talk about in the first place. Um, they are scheduled, at least last time I heard, to launch next year. So they have got some recent money. I think another 10 million added to their already already like raised seven or eight million. So they're almost up to 20 million. And it was a previous investor who actually invested in Dark Age of Camelot. So it's um it'll be interesting to see. I think that that will certainly help. They have a bigger dev team now. I think they actually even have another studio now. Um, I. I, I think good things because one thing about Mark Jacobs is he knows how to make three round PVP. He knows how to make interesting uh, classes and he knows how to make unique classes. So we'll see exactly what he can do with that game. And if he has the correct tech and ability to actually perform on the vision that he wants to perform uh, on or with rather. Also lol at unreal tournament being buried at the bottom of Epic games, page rip. Death of a game artifact win. Um, I I so I can I can just answer this question generally. I won't typically do a death of a game of something unless I'm absolutely sure that I know that the game is not going to make a comeback. And and, and like in the case of Fallout seventy six and artifact, they very well could make comebacks because even though theoretically speaking they shouldn't because of like you know the type of experiences that they advertise, so to say, and how they you know. Well, first off, Artifact's a little bit different. I think it's just a... Actually, no. Artifact and 76 are both core, not good games, in my, in my opinion. Um, I don't think there's enough there to keep people there long-term. Um, but that being said, I think that they can kind of squeak out a little bit longer, probably even years. That's the thing with these big games, and their rabid fan base doesn't care. They're willing to defend Fallout 76. So in that case, I can't just like say that it's going to die, but if it was a private studio, an independent studio who had a publisher... I, you'd, you'd hear me be banging the drum because they probably would be right on the chopping block. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that there needs to be enough clues um, and bits of evidence that I can feel like I'm going to make a very educated assessment whenever I analyze if the company's you know, going to die or not going to die. And I try and stick to the ones that I feel like are a little bit more sure, right? And and of course, if I wanted to stick to the ones that are absolutely sure, I'd only cover the ones that have died. But I also try and cover ones that are more so recently in the news but hopefully that will change once our kind of monetization scheme changes to Patreon versus being more so uh, reliant on YouTube as it currently is, which basically means I have to make my content in order to afford a living. <laughs> so I do a video on Rift and not Asheron's Call because Rift has um, and had rather far more players that played the game. It's sold over a million copies. So it's going and it's also in the news recently. So it makes more sense for me to do a game on or do a video on Rift, even though I maybe wanted to do one on Asheron's Call or on maybe I want to do one, as I mentioned, Try on Worlds. But those won't do as well popularity wise, which unfortunately my content right now is a little bit hamstrung in that way, that it needs to be popular enough for me to live, essentially. <laughs> even heals are collision detected. That's awesome. So you can block enemy healers by getting between them and their target. That's a great way to balance healing, in my opinion. Didn't Artifact lose 60% of their player base already? I've heard even more, but I just... I hold your breath. Yeah. Sorry, I was behind. You plan, you plan on playing uh, Kingdom Hearts 3? Here's the funny thing about Kingdom Hearts 3 is... um, never got into Kingdom Hearts. I don't know why. 
even though like my cousin loves it and I think my girlfriend would love it, just never particularly got into it because it just feels kind of like Disney with not Final Fantasy mixed together. And I don't know. It just never really did it for me. I'll, I'll give it a chance. I, I surely at some point, maybe on stream, I'll do a classic, like a remaster version. I'll try and play that. Theme of it holds up the IP of Fallout is what will keep it online. Yeah, basically. Send website for Fractured MMO to card. Ah, yeah. I, I saw, um, I saw Fractured. We've talked about it a few times. I think their combat looks much, much, much better than Legends of Aria. I would love if we can actually edit aspects of combat when we can actually edit the server in Aria because that would be awesome. We might be one of the first servers to actually balance combat uh, much better, at least than it currently is. Oh, uh, Ulysses has a question. Let me pull. Hey, man, uh, you have a question before I finish this off? Uh, I had a comment about you were talking about queues earlier and why a system wouldn't have a 1v1 queue. Okay. Um, so this was a pro this has been an pro ongoing problem in World of Warcraft actually for a while. One of the most requested features is either a solo queue into the 3v3 arena system or a 1v1 arena system. Um, and it's been hinted at. It's been people have, devs have said that they have thought of, but they've never delivered on. It. And while I don't have a uh, concrete answer as to why they haven't decided to do it because it's a highly requested feature, I do have uh, some speculation to offer. Whenever um, it used to be that for casual battlegrounds, and it still is this way, the biggest complaint with is that. If you have more healers on one team, that team is generally going to win. You have a much better chance of winning if you have a better support players on your team. So I, I can't remember what patch this was, but they attempted to address this by uh, forcing teams to have X number of healers per team before the game would would uh, queue, would, would, go, would uh, execute before it would start. Um, the problem with that was queue times went up astronomically because there weren't enough healers uh, for uh, any for the team for the actual for all the people to play. Um, I think that uh, generally speaking, whenever you have a game where they say you can't, uh, we're going to say you can't uh, in this particular way. It's usually to mitigate some flaw with the game i don't know enough about uh smash brothers to comment on whether that's the case there but in world of warcraft i believe it is the case um because if you implemented a uh solo queue into 3v3 system then the next thing would be everyone would be complaining because you know the teams that are the the classic setup the uh healer two dps or two healers one dps would win every game right um, similarly, if you had a 1v1 system, class balance and a Holy Trinity MMO would be havoc for that, for that, for a 1v1 arena. Well, what, one thing you have to realize, uh, kind of like what I was saying earlier is, um, even though I see where your line of reasoning is in the case of Nintendo, it's so different because like their culture is just totally different. So like, for example, uh, they, have had a history of not supporting esports. It's very well publicized. At one point, they even told people who were organizing melee tournaments that we're, we're going to shut you down. And so they, the community essentially had to slap Nintendo around and be like, no, you're not. 
and then Nintendo has slowly and slowly been more receptive to esports, but still, you know, certainly hasn't just straight up accepted it. Um, which again is strange because people just think that well, it's Japan, so it's like the same as Korea, right? Korea is like esports. It's like it's very different. First off, um, Japan is a fighting game community, but they're also a fighting game community that is is like almost like built to like casual in certain ways, and, and that's the thing about Nintendo. I mean, you probably could expect it with some of their games, but like their Smash games, in my opinion, the reason why they don't just want a straight up one v one game mode is because they don't want the game to seem like it's being uh, marketed towards a competitive audience outright, which is so totally strange, I know, because they've done things to the contrary. But they still want to maintain that casual party game, because they used to call themselves a party game all the time, not a fighting game, by the way, which is a clear distinction that only, I feel like, uh, Japanese uh, culture would really care about. <laughs> Whereas to, to us, you know, to Americans, we're just like, it's a fighting game. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Yeah, I I can understand that now having some more context that they have been against uh competitive play for cultural reasons. Uh that that makes more sense. Um it is my belief though that unless there is a gameplay reason why it can't work like I described in World of Warcraft where right. I was defending World of Warcraft for saying it's probably a better idea that you organize yourselves outside of the queue system and then go into it. Um if there isn't a gameplay reason, then I, generally speaking, let players vote with their feet how they want to play the game. I think that this also is in some ways related to the whole Blizzard uh, removing the scoreboard in Overwatch. I mean, I've mentioned this before, but not many people know that Overwatch in beta, closed beta, used to have a scoreboard. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, I remember. it was promptly removed. And so the speculation was essentially that, um, well... It's speculation mixed with a little bit of conversation with developers, but essentially people were told that it was toxic. It was leading to toxic uh, player player base. Um, and the funny thing about that is it's actually kind of the opposite in a way. It's the only way that you can police whether or not your teammate is doing well or not. <laughs> it's the well, only way that you know. <laughs> that is uh, that is something else I, I was going to bring up, but I'd forgotten about it since you had made the point. Uh, Overwatch... Um, if you look, compare it to older school shooters, just games in general, uh, the social design of the game is much more trying to treat the play with uh, sort of uh, soft gloves. Yeah, for um, sure. They, they aren't discouraging when you lose. They try to minimize the downside and play up the upside with the play of the game being the highlight of the game. Um, there is, uh, it's hard to uh, trash talk the other team. Um, I think that this is another case where they're sort of shooting themselves in the foot. Um, maybe it is going too far to have a, whenever you lose, having a super, like, uh, aggressive, like, you lose screen, uh, or anything. But on the other hand, if you aren't showing people how they're doing accurately, um, then it becomes ambiguous as to let me use this as an example um if i'm playing overwatch with a whole bunch of people and uh, i don't know you know how bad i'm doing anyone could accuse me of holding the team back because no one really knows how bad anyone's doing right um and in that way i actually think it can be more toxic especially um if you're playing with people who who are really competitive no, it, it can be, and that's that's kind of what I was trying to say. It's like it's ironic because in certain ways you'd think that it would have helped, but in in many ways, for example, 
uh, me having just recently got to Diamond, um, like a, I think a month or two ago, what, what I experienced in that game was essentially that even at that level, you're still running into people who essentially have no fundamental way of how to play the game. Like they have no idea of how to play the game on a fundamental level. So it essentially just becomes like everyone, you know, yelling at each other and being like, oh, it's your fault because you played this character or it's your fault because you played this character. But how do you actually prove to people unless you screenshot and then like, hey, I'm going to send you this message. Like (laughs) there's no way to know. Whereas Uh when you're playing other games, say, for example, like Dota and you see that the guy on your team is doing really well in that kind of game, you might just let him keep carrying you. You might just say, hey, man, you want me to buy you some wards or something? you'd play second fiddle but in in overwatch it's kind of like everyone is equal therefore everyone is like all you know all the sum of each other so it it always feels like you don't I have as much control ran into this problem in guild wars too um because if you're running around because i like you know more open uh pvp i would do the roaming combat combat in the uh, pvp uh for the realm versus realm or server versus server more accurately uh, with Guild Wars 2. And because they are so anti um, DPS meter, you can't, and they're they're very anti um, tracking as far as what's going on with the game. Um, you know, I know how much damage I'm doing. I know how much I'm contributing to each fight. But it's hard to articulate that to your teammates. And if you're playing with very competitive people like I do, um, then uh, you can get into some really big arguments and fights. It can even, it can, especially if you're not playing, you know, a traditional, you know, meta class. If you're not playing the thing that everyone knows is good, right? Then it's hard to prove that you actually are contributing when you you know you. Um, it's so bad that there, I, I basically, you know, quit doing, quit playing um, that aspect of the game, um, because it can be toxic. Yeah, I, I think. Um... At the end of the day, you can market to a competitive audience, but generally speaking, these big companies are going to try and uh, market to the the biggest audience, which is the casual audience. But it's just a shame that it's even seen as like problematic to just introduce a ranked mode in the first place. It's like if your casual audience is going to complain about that, then don't play ranked. I've never understood that criticism. (laughs) How do you complain about ranked being like, tough and people oh they try too hard and whatever else then just play normals like don't play i actually think it's kind of lazy design because in an ideal mmo especially mmos you know i guess um smash is probably a different story here but in mmos in the ideal mmo you would have different kinds of content for different kinds of players right you would have content just for casual players um and you would have content just for competitive players where they aren't mixing but trying to force casual players to enjoy competitive content, that's, I don't, I think that that's doomed from the start and trying to handle them with kid gloves around how well they're doing and what's supposed to be competitive um, just ruins it for everybody. It's not fun for the casual player and it's not fun for the competitive. Well, it's also been proven uh, many times, even, even Blizzard has proved it uh, themselves on a couple of times which is that even if you make games that are very competitive in nature and maybe aren't the most like open to casual audiences, they can still have wide success. I mean, look at, look at Dota, man. <laughs> Dota 2 is like one of the most like harsh experiences you'll have in terms of like uh, nobody's going to hold your hand. But that mm-hmm. being said, 
it's a game that's still you know one of the most played games like on a monthly basis so it's it's like even though i understand it's better to to market to people who aren't maybe the most competitive so to say but to then just completely ignore your other part of the audience just seems silly especially when other games like csgo and, and I mean, Valve in general is pretty good at it, but they're good at mixing their ca- their casual with their competitive, generally speaking. Well, there's something that I think a lot of developers go in cycles of forgetting and remembering and doing it wrong and forgetting, um, which is aspirational gameplay. Um, it's where because you know that there is a higher ceiling to reach, whether that is a skill ceiling or a gear ceiling or some kind of progression ceiling. And you see people who are at that level, even though you aren't at that level, it gives you a reason to play the game because you know that one day you could. Be. Um, and I've even been in cases where, like, you know, I remember um, in Burning Crusade, I, I know I've had this conversation with you before, but just knowing that there were people who were clearing Sunwell and beating Kiljade, even though I knew full well that I would never have the time and dedication to do that. Um, it was cool that those people were in the game. It gave a sense of scale to what I was doing on the lower end of the um, I think that often uh, game developers, they see that and they think, well, no one's experiencing my content, though. I built Sunwell, and you know, a tiny percentage of the player base is only ever seeing it. But they're forgetting the whole purpose of that tier of play in the first place, right? And that's why we get, went into future generations, like in Wrath of Lich King, and then in future generations of the game, where everyone was shoved up into the, into the latest tier of content. I actually think misses the point. Um, if, you ever, um, if you ever get a chance, one of the first BlizzCon they did, uh, where they talked about World of Warcraft, um, there was a great, uh, there was a great uh, presentation by... I, I forget what his name is now, but he's the leader of Overwatch for Ed Blizzard. Um, and he described um, this, sa- this same problem that people... Oh, you mean uh, Kaplan? Kaplan, yes. Kaplan gave a great presentation at the first Blizzard on how, yes, it may only be that you know 10% of players get to the very last boss in our raids in Vanilla WoW, but because 40% or better of the population is in raiding in general, Knowing that those ten per- those those bosses are out there that they can't gives you a reason to keep playing the game. Probably way past what was initially set out to be the lifespan of this content. Um, yeah, I would recommend that present watching that presentation on YouTube to anybody who's interested in in sort of game design because I think it's lost wisdom. Well, I appreciate you uh, for sharing it, and I think that we had. An, an interesting conversation, but I'm gonna. Yeah, thanks. I'm going to end uh, earlier today, so I think I will mention one last thing to you guys, and then we'll go ahead and end the podcast today. So please, everyone, thank Ulysses for stopping by and asking a question, or co- or having a comment rather, <laughs> <laughs> a rambly comment. But uh, thank you for having me on, and you're welcome. All right, sure. I'll see you around, man. Or see you next week. <laughs> yep. All right, so one last thing I wanted to tell everybody while I have you guys here is I'd like if somebody would um, volunteer to help us with uh, gathering questions. Basically, we would moderate or give you a moderator role on Twitch, 
and your your job essentially would be to gather questions and then send them to me on Discord and tell me who sent them essentially. Uh, and so it's it's basically like it's like a volunteer thing. Again, some of you already show up anyway, so I figured I'd just ask you guys if you wanted to help. Um, but um, yeah, I'm just throwing that out there. So feel free to send me a message or whatever else if you're interested. But uh, it's just so you know, Card, for example, is standing in today to help moderate, but he's not he's not uh, an American. He's he's uh, from the Netherlands. So right now it's probably a little bit late he just got home from work so i don't necessarily want him to always be the one volunteering to do this kind of thing yeah just throwing that out there <laughs> hey i've been out for the last hour and a half taking care of my sick kid can you go over everything i missed please <laughs> yeah on second thought i'll leave you guys with that i'd like to thank everybody for watching this week's podcast uh of course i'm nerd slayer i was your host today we had a bunch of things to talk about and hopefully more to talk about. As always, next week in the world of gaming, there's always more news and more crazy stuff going on. So there's always something to talk about. Hopefully we'll have more developments in regards to MMOs. And um, you guys enjoy the rest of your week, rest of your day. And uh, yeah, play some games, meet some people, enjoy some life experiences, and achieve your goals. That's all I got for you guys. See y'all later.